Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. and the vice president's poll numbers have been falling. Um, how big of a concern is that for this White House, particularly with an eye towards the midterm elections in just a year from now? Are you talking about a particular poll? No. No, just in, in general? So, look, you know, one of the things that I want to say is that we are confident that our policies uh, will improve the lives of nearly every American. And so grow our economy and create jobs. That's our focus, to make sure that we continue to push the president's economic policies. And, you know, look, polls are all over the map, and that's not going to be our focus right now. The president was also asked this uh, last Tuesday, and he wants to make sure that we deliver for the American public. And that is uh, that is what we're going to, uh, that's what we're going to focus on. And also, like, poll after poll, um, including uh, the poll that you may be thinking of or other polls that are out there, uh, has showed us the components of the bipartisan infrastructure deal and the Build Back Better framework are very popular. And that's important uh, to note. And American families want to see these historic investment in infrastructure. They want to see it in care. They want to see in competitive. They want to see in this addressing the climate crisis. And so that's what we're seeing and that's what matters as we're moving forward is delivering for the American public. Secretary, Secretary Mayor Pete, um, could you give us um, the breakdown of the implementation of Justice 40 with the infrastructure package that's now passed and signed into law? And also, um, can you give us the construct of how you will deconstruct the racism that was built into the roadways that you talked to the Grio earlier when you broke that information with us? Can you talk to us about how that could be deconstructed? For sure, yeah. So you know, the principle of Justice 40 is that at least 40% of the clean investments in this bill will go to benefit the communities that are overburned, overburdened and, and underserved. So part one of that is defining those, those investments that are eligible, and that's a lot of it. And we're working to map out kind of program by program, mode by mode, uh, what would qualify. For example, if we're uh, buying clean buses, right, how do we make sure in terms of where those buses go? But also looking at the business opportunity, the jobs that are going to be created, the businesses that, that uh, will have a chance to compete uh, for, for the business opportunities it creates. That, too, I think is a very important element of equity here that's in the spirit of Justice 40. And again, we have a lot of guidance and oversight from the White House since that's an administration-wide initiative. But we know that we've got to build our own internal uh, kind of ways of, of uh, aligning and defining that inside the administration. As to where we target those, those dollars, you know, I, I'm still surprised that some people were surprised when I pointed to the fact that uh, if a highway was built for the purpose of di dividing a white and a black neighborhood, 
or if an underpass was constructed such that a bus carrying mostly black and Puerto Rican kids uh, to a beach, or there would have been, uh, in New York was, was designed uh, too low for it to pass by, that that obviously reflects racism that went into those design choices. Um, I don't think we have anything to lose by confronting that simple reality, and I think we have everything to gain by acknowledging it and then dealing with it, which is why the reconnecting communities, that billion dollars, is something we want to get to work right away, uh, uh, putting to work. But that's such a heavy lift. I mean, you have to reconstruct communities that this happened to. As you said, some of these beltways and, and interstates and roadways were built before the Civil Rights Act, before the Voting Rights Act, and were made meant to be racist. But how do you go about redefining and replanning these roadways and communities that are already settled in yeah. um, since then? So What's interesting is it's going to vary by community, and we have to listen to the community. Sometimes it really is the case that an overpass went in a certain way that is so harmful that it's got to come down or maybe be put underground. Other times, maybe it's not that way. Maybe the really important thing is to connect across it, to add rather than subtract. And that's where we don't want to impose a one-size-fits-all answer uh, from here. But when we were out in Syracuse, for example, looking at I-81, we saw the local vision. Uh, for how they want to get past those divisions. And those local ideas are going to be taken very seriously as we try to meet the spirit of this law. You give us the construct of how you will deconstruct the racism that was built into the roadways that you talked to the Grio earlier when you broke that information with us. Can you talk to us about how that could be deconstructed? For sure, yeah. So you know, the principle of Justice 40 is that at least 40% of the clean investments in this bill will go to benefit the communities that are overburned, overburdened and, and underserved. So part one of that is defining those, those investments that are eligible, and that's a lot of it. And we're working to map out kind of program by program, mode by mode, uh, what would qualify. For example, if we're uh, buying clean buses, right, how do we make sure in terms of where those buses go? But also looking at the business opportunity, the jobs that are going to be created, the businesses that, that uh, will have a chance to compete uh, for, for the business opportunities it creates. That, too, I think is a very important element of equity here that's in the spirit of Justice 40. And again, we have a lot of guidance and oversight from the White House since that's an administration-wide initiative. But we know that we've got to build our own internal uh, kind of ways of, of uh, aligning and defining that inside the administration. As to where we target those, those dollars, you know, I, I'm still surprised that some people were surprised when I pointed to the fact that uh, if a highway was built for the purpose of di dividing a white and a black neighborhood, or if an underpass was constructed such that a bus carrying mostly black and Puerto Rican kids uh, to a beach, or there would have been, uh, in New York was, was designed uh, too low for it to pass by, that that obviously reflects racism that went into those design choices. Um, I don't think we have anything to lose by confronting that simple reality. And I think we have everything to gain by acknowledging it and then dealing with it, which is why the reconnecting communities, that billion dollars, is something we want to get to work right away uh, uh, Putting to work. But that's such a heavy lift. I mean, you have to reconstruct communities that this happened to. As you said, some of these beltways and, and interstates and roadways were built before the Civil Rights Act, before the Voting Rights Act, and were made meant to be racist. But how do you go about redefining and replanning these roadways and communities that are already settled in yeah. um, 
So what's interesting is it's going to vary by community, and we have to listen to the community. Sometimes it really is the case that an overpass went in a certain way that is so harmful that it's got to come down or maybe be put underground. Other times, maybe it's not that way. Maybe the really important thing is to connect across it, to add rather than subtract. And that's where we don't want to impose a one-size-fits-all answer uh, from here. But when we were out in Syracuse, for example, looking at I-81, we saw the local vision. Uh, for how they want to get past those divisions. And those local ideas are going to be taken very seriously as we try to meet the spirit of this law. Thank you, Secretary. As to where we target those, those dollars, you know, I, I'm still surprised that some people were surprised when I pointed to the fact that uh, if a highway was built for the purpose of di dividing a white and a black neighborhood, or if an underpass was constructed such that a bus carrying mostly black and Puerto Rican kids uh, to a beach, or it would have been, uh, in New York was, was designed uh, too low for it to pass by, that that obviously reflects racism that went into those design choices. Um, I don't think we have anything to lose by confronting that simple reality. And I think we have everything to gain by acknowledging it and then dealing with it, which is why the reconnecting communities, that billion dollars, is something we want to get to work right away uh, uh, Putting to work. I can take, I'm going to get in real trouble. This is the last question I'm taking. You can decide who I'm pointing to. I'd like to ask you real quick, sir, where, where do you stand? You said last week uh, that this report about uh, migrant families at the border getting payments uh, was garbage. No, I didn't uh, say that. Let's get it straight. You said everybody coming across the border gets $450,000. So the number was what you had a problem The number I was referring to. Okay. Now here's the thing. Sure. If in fact, because of the, the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child, you lost your child, it's gone, you deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. What that will be, I have no idea. I have no idea. But you don't think DOJ negotiated settlement? A man accused of murdering another man who he called his uncle pleaded not guilty to the crime today. 24-year-old Yeri Medina Ujoa appeared in a Duval County courtroom this morning. According to his arrest report, witnesses found him covered in blood in an Arlington neighborhood on October 7th after the deadly stabbing. Investigators say Ujoa used a fake name, posing as a 17-year-old, and had been in the country illegally. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 10th of November, year of our Lord, 2021. People don't give a fuck. They just don't care. They don't care about anything because they don't have to care. First and foremost, I apologize for last podcast. I don't know what the hell went wrong. There was another one of those corrupt files that I couldn't figure out what it was. I tried processing that video for two days while I was working and it was just jacked. I would come home, it wouldn't be done. Try it again, wake up, it wouldn't be done. It was a hot fucking mess, but... Hopefully we got it set up. I got two backup programs now to try to process if this doesn't work, but going to an old standby, just putting all these little bites together. So they're processed in a way that there can't be some weird file it doesn't like. In there, you also see that, you know, we have a serious uh, illegal immigrant and, and it's just, there's so much shit. It all gets buried. You can't keep up with everything. And I think that's their plan. I mean, these are brutal. Harris, that's a record. N no vice president's ever had polls like this, ever. 
And I fixed my slideshow. Yeah, that was a setting I was forgetting to do. Troy, this one is even worse about what he wants to do. Nobody wants this. I don't care if you're a three-dick Martian. Nobody wants to compensate. Half of Americans say he's the worst. Worse than he expected. Half. Half Americans. And look at the numbers. It, it It's Democrats. It's blacks, Latinos. They, they hired a guy to be normal. And they ended up just getting Satan. Just fucking Satan. The guy is horrible. Trying to get a couple more sound sound bites. Sorry. Before we move on. Got to make sure I put them over here before I forget. I think the thing that cracks me up the most is that most Americans just didn't see through the bullshit. They, they just didn't see through the bullshit. They really thought Trump bad tweets bad er bad but he was part of all the evil I, I want us to go down memory lane because we got some serious shit coming out now with this steel dossier people linked to the president i mean nobody's talking about this Special counsel John Durham's investigation into the origins of the Trump-Russia probe making its way into the Biden White House. Fox News can confirm White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is the foreign policy advisor mentioned in the indictment of Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman. Sussman was charged in September with lying to the FBI for failing to disclose his work for the Clinton campaign when he delivered information about alleged connections between Donald Trump and the Kremlin via a Russian bank. The information turned out to be false. According to the indictment, another campaign attorney exchanged emails with a foreign policy advisor, Sullivan, concerning the Russian bank allegations. There is no indication Sullivan is a target in the Durham probe. Fox News reached out to his office for comment, and we have yet to hear back. Durham began his probe into the origins of the Russia investigation two and a half years ago, but in the past two and a half months, the pace has picked up. Last week, Durham charged Igor Danchenko, a Russian national, with lying to the FBI. Durham claims Danchenko was a source for British spy Christopher Steele and his infamous dossier. And then in September, you have this meeting with the indicted Clinton lawyer, uh, Sussman, and Jake Sullivan and others. And then it was shortly after that, in October, that uh, Sullivan released the major public statement that there was this covert server uh, tying uh, Trump to, to Moscow, something that was completely fallacious, but he put it all over the media.
When he was asked later by Congress, sort of what's going on here? I mean, did you know the basis of this, the source of this? He said no. He even denied knowing that Sussman, or the roles of Sussman and Clinton general counsel Mark Elias uh, in creating these, these allegations. We have no evidence that Sullivan is being investigated for a crime. But what we're seeing now is this multi-layer connection between the Clinton campaign and this scandal. And it seems very clear that Durham believes that this was basically a, a campaign effort to dupe the FBI. 2019. The other two, one is named Kevin Kleinsmith. He's a former FBI attorney who pleaded guilty to falsifying a document used to obtain a FISA warrant against Trump campaign aide Carter Page. The other, Michael Sussman, he is the former Clinton campaign attorney charged with lying to the FBI about alleged connections between Donald Trump and the Kremlin. Sussman's information did not pan out. We also have this confirmed, Sandra, today. The indictment alleges that Sussman communicated information with a Clinton foreign policy advisor. We can confirm that foreign policy advisor was Jake Sullivan, President Biden's current national security advisor. That correspondence happened in September 2016. I reached out to Jake Sullivan's office today for comment, basically the indictment saying that uh, Sussman gave some of the information to Sullivan. Uh, at this point, doesn't say anything else about Sullivan, Sullivan's alleged uh, involvement. Sandra. David Spunt reporting live from the Justice Department. John, if there's one thing that is for sure, um, you know, our viewers are invested in this, seeing where the story oh, yeah. goes next, and we're taking in every new detail. I saw Andy McCarthy this morning on America's Newsroom with yes. Bill and Dana. He suggests, as he did with us last week, that this could lead to an infuriating report from John Durham, but maybe not any criminal charges, because it's a political dirty trick, he believes, at its, at its ground level and not necessarily illegal. That's so you, may, you might get some illeg illegality among some of the players. We got some good, can, different legal takes. Jonathan Turley yeah. had a slightly different take as well with us. We'll have more on that coming up. That's, that's why law is an, all an Absolutely. opinion. The most important source of Christopher Steele and his dossier fraud, not one of his sources, but the most important, was just indicated for lying to the FBI, indicted, excuse me. I think that's what he meant to say. What we are seeing again is that the real crimes are the origins of the Russian gate spread mindlessly by the media. Here, here's the Washington Post. The allegation casts new uncertainty on some of the dossier by news organizations, including the Washington Post. These people all got Pulitzers. New York Times, Washington Post showered themselves with Pulitzers for their monomaniacal obsession with Russiagate. Even Mueller admitted he could not find no evidence. The key thing in this, he did find that Hillary was part of it. It was her thing. For anyone now trying to claim that the now fully obliterated and exposed steel dossier fraud was not centrally featured as a part, key part of the Russiagate by corporate media, see this thread complete with links and citations that Drew Holden, we did it last podcast. But they knew. The FBI knew. The media knew. Everybody knew after the Mueller that this was all a Hillary Clinton bullshit. She schemed this up. They didn't get the information in time. They were talking about it in June. If you go back to the podcast, if you follow this podcast, I was talking about it. Her guy was on TV already talking about Russiagate because they were just getting info, but it was too late. He then goes, ah, oh, man, my slides are all fucked up. Sorry. Let's make this 
not so big. We're gonna we're gonna get back to being a good podcast. I don't know how we're gonna do it though. I'd like to make three points. The vast majority of disinformation, propaganda, and lies that flooded the country over the last five years did not come from mega boomers on Facebook or 4chan teenagers, but the largest and most influential liberal corporate media outlets. These are not cases where media outlets air. They deliberately lied. The way to know that it that is they refused to acknowledge evidence proving they lied. Remember, they just ignored Shrek reports, book repro- providing or pro- proving the Biden emails are real. Now this. Look at this. There's no Dan Chaco emails. Google suppressing this shit. By far the best and most accurate reporting on all matters relating to Russia Gate came not from the liberal corporate outlets that want to censor the internet in the same name of disinformation or which shower themselves with Pulitzer for lies, but from the right-wing press. Reporters who know most about the Russia Gate and to distinguish the facts for it, Chuck Ross, Jerry Dunleavy, Mary. Mary Molly Hemingway, I cannot read today, along with a few young journalists who risked their careers, Aaron J. Mate, M. Tracy. A few people objected to my statement yesterday that hatred of them is just. Is just. Think about this. They spent weeks before the 2020 election spreading the CIA lie that the Biden emails were Russiagate information again. They just doubled down because they knew they could do it because people are so fucking stupid. And after all of it, there are people losing their minds because the Fifth Circuit stopped his OSHA unconstitutional bullshit. OSHA can't make mandates. The president can't make mandates. States can, company can, but the president can't. And said, fuck Trump. He needs to take a bullet, burn cities down. Here's one of their ringleaders. We live in America. We have freedom of speech. Though employers have a right to restrict what you say on their time. My issue with Let's Go Brandon thing is not that it's offensive. It's that it's stupid. If you're going to curse an elect official, why use a silly code phrase? It's fun, and it pokes fun at your stupid profession for pretending. It's flipping perfect on a variety of levels. You just don't like people pissing in your post-toasties because it drives all you insane. No, because it's a perfect analogy of our media. It is our media. Our media will write, as people are saying, fuck Joe Biden, they'll say, let's go Brandon to protect Joe Biden. It's what you guys have done since I was conscious in my 20s. And these people that you got elected by the media and the fortifying of elections, here's the vice president with a 28% approval talking about tree equity and one of their top advisors talking about bankrupting oil companies. For certain uh, troubled industries and firms that are in transitioning. And here what I'm thinking about is primarily coal industry and oil and gas industry. A lot of the smaller players in that industry are uh, going to probably uh, go bankrupt. In, in, in short order, at least we want them to go bankrupt if we want to tackle climate change, right? Climate adaptation strategies. Can you measure um, change? Part yes. of that data that you're referring to, and it's in EJ's environmental justice 
but you can also track by race there are averages in terms of the number of trees in the neighborhood where people live remember this none of this is a bug this is the plan Biden admin amassing millions of records on U.S. gun owners amid new crackdown of firearms. They think they know better than you. You don't deserve it. Regardless of the Fifth Circuit, they're going to do it anyway. They don't care. And then Granholm last one laughing about oil. They're thinking about shutting down more pipelines. How bad could energy prices be this winter here in the United States? Yeah, let me just take it separately. One is that gasoline prices, according to the Energy Information Agency, which is the agency that objectively looks at and projects where pricing is going, gasoline prices, they project, will be down to $3.05 on average at the beginning of December and continue to stay around in that range. So it will come down. Um, natural gas prices are slightly different. Um, again, that's very regional. It's uh, what ha- is happening in Europe. It, natural gas prices are not the global market that oil prices are. So in the U.S., our, our natural gas supplies are okay. The prices, though, are high because they're not as robust. The supplies are not as robust as they, as they had been. So this is all coming off, as you note in your report, a real downturn in the economy due to COVID. You can't flip a switch and turn all of those rigs back on. Um, They are coming on, but it's slow. So that's one of the reasons why the prices are high. Of course, on the the gasoline oil side, it is a global market, and that's what we're seeing. Europe has got it much worse uh, than we do. Right. Gas prices in California hit an all-time record, $4.75 a gallon in San Francisco according to the fuel savings platform gas buddy now earlier this month you said that a ban on u.s crude exports is a possible tool to calm oil prices keep that keep that production here keep the keep the product here uh, also you said on the table tapping the strategic petroleum reserve um, could it come to to that could it come to both those actions Let, I, I, I there's a whole array of tools that could be put on the table. Some are more realistic than others. But remember, of course, that oil and gas are not regulated in the United States. We, unlike other countries, do not own any oil or gas companies. The federal government doesn't. So it is a free market, and they are allowed to do what they are going to do. And a lot of that is just based on supply and demand. So there are some tools. Some are more extreme than others. The president will make some decisions uh, about whether to use any of them based upon whether there's an emergency or not. $3 $3 a gallon gasoline probably doesn't fall into that category. You know, we also have some ability to help low-income households when it comes to natural gas help to pay for their price, particularly, for example, in the Northeast, where there is a heavy reliance on home heating oil and propane. Those prices are also very high. But in that American uh, Rescue Act that was passed earlier this year, we did a significant increase in billions of dollars in low-income heating uh, funding to be able to help households to meet their uh, energy needs during the winter. So we really encourage states to make that fully available to citizens in the places where natural gas prices Mm -hmm. are high. They don't want you to be self-providing. They want you just dependent. 
And the media is part of it. In the intro, the Pete Bud, like April Ryan, Secretary Mayor Pete, can you give us the construct on how you will deconstruct racism? That is some crazy shit from ages ago. We covered this on the show back in 16 or 17, where all this CRT from college was creeping out into policy tree equity roads were made so black people can go to certain times of town you know none of it is about race you jackals it's about class we have class problems and the very democrats that are saying we're going to take care of it and those people are racist over there they're the fucking ones that are not going to change their lifestyle do you think They're going to stop flying in jets. Do you think they're going to give up their phones? You shut down petroleum, you don't even have Tupperware, motherfucker. Petroleum is how we have computers and everything. Everything around you is made of petroleum. Clothing have petroleum in it. Polyester. Where the fuck you think all this shit came from? And then they get butthurt when people go on TV and say, this is what they want. Like this segment from Tucker with Candace. Carlson, we're glad to see you. It's only Monday, but we're going to try and cram the nutritional content of an entire week of shows into the next hour. We've got Governor Ron DeSantis on new reports that the White House is secretly flying illegal aliens into the state of Florida because immigration is not about politics. Then we've got Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports, who is waging one of the great battles of all time against repulsive slurs from legacy media outlets that hate him. They're trying to destroy him. He is unbowed. Then we've got Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is one of the only lawmakers who has bothered to visit the January 6th defendants who are rotting in the D.C. jail. She'll tell us what she just saw there. We want to start tonight with Joe Biden, the isolated and deeply unpopular president of the United States. At this point, pretty much no one likes Joe Biden or will admit it. The latest USA Today poll has Biden at a terrifying 38% job approval rating. Biden's been in office less than a year, and already two-thirds of voters do not want him to run again. How unpopular is Joe Biden as of tonight? Let's put it this way. He's only 10 points above the single most despised person in the United States, which is his own vice president. Jeffrey Epstein now has more admirers than Kamala Harris does. And that is the territory that Joe Biden now occupies. So it's genuinely bad and it has political effects as we saw last week. The question is, why is this happening? Why are people so dissatisfied all of a sudden with Joe Biden? Well, the obvious answer is, and you're going to hear a lot of people say this, Joe Biden is senile and ineffective. But if you think about it, that's not true. It can't really be true because voters knew perfectly well all along that Biden was doddering. They knew that when they elected him. It was obvious even then. In fact, it was part of his appeal. Biden was too slow to be threatening to anyone. This was not a guy who was going to be making a lot of sudden moves. If you secretly wished it was still 1985, Joe Biden was your man because he was under the impression that it actually was. So no, senility is not Joe Biden's main problem. Joe Biden's problem is weakness. Biden is afraid. You see it every time you look at him. He's overwhelmed. He's off balance. And that's why he's so often snappy and aggressive, because underneath it all, he feels anxious. Biden isn't always sure where he is or what's happening around him. So a man like that cannot possibly lead a country this complex. But the problem is his weakness makes him a target for predators. 
ideologues like Susan Rice or Barack Obama can take a man like that hostage and make him read their scripts. That's exactly what is happening. And you saw it so clearly last week. Our own Peter Ducey asked Biden about the White House plan to pay reparations to illegal aliens, up to almost half a million dollars per person. So the very idea of an administration doing that under any circumstances is completely deranged. What's interesting is that Joe Biden, who's not ideological, he's emotional, Biden understood that immediately. And so he responded when asked the way that any normal person would. He said, effectively, what the hell are you talking about? That's crazy. Watch. There were reports that were surfacing that your administration is planning to pay illegal immigrants who are separated from their families at the border up to $450,000 each, possibly a million dollars per family. Do you think that that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? If you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. So this is a garbage report? Yeah. Well, yeah, Biden was right. Reparations for illegals, that is garbage. And most people think it. A new poll by the Trafalgar Group shows that fully two-thirds of the country, that's a majority of Democrats, as well as, of course, a majority of Republicans, believe that idea is nuts because it obviously is nuts. Paying people to break our laws? Were you crazy? That would destroy the country, obviously. Now, whatever you think of Biden, he's been in politics for more than 50 years. And at this point, if nothing else, he's got a pretty good gut sense of these things. So the second he heard that idea, the second Peter Ducey presented it to him, he was against it on instinct. Unfortunately, Joe Biden is no longer in charge. He no longer makes meaningful decisions. The ideologues are in charge. The Obama people are in charge. That's the point. That's what we're watching. So after that moment, they hauled Joe Biden before the Central Committee. They gave him a good re-education. And the next thing you know, Biden is out there dutifully repeating their lunatic slogans. Watch this. If, in fact, because of the, the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child, you lost your child, it's gone. You deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. What that will be, I have no idea. I have no idea. You see that? The narrowed eyes, the finger point, the jabbing in your face. Notice how angry Biden looks in that clip. This is not a man who's in control, not of his own emotions, obviously, but also not of the administration he supposedly runs. The ideologues are in control, and that is a huge problem for the rest of us. It's a problem because ideologues have no interest in the lives of actual human beings. Ideologues care only about their theories, about the bright new future they are building. Human beings are just speed bumps on the way to utopia. So not surprisingly, when ideologues take over a society, any society, in any country, at any point throughout history, life always gets much worse for most people. Borders fall, crime rises, schools collapse, inflation gets out of control. Suddenly there are drug addicts living in tent cities in your neighborhood screaming at your kids as you walk by. Quality of life falls off a cliff. It's intolerable for most people. But the ideologues don't care because they're completely focused on the shiny new society they're constructing. Nothing else matters. Perfection is always just around the corner. As soon as we get rid of all these white men, everything will be great. They say that and they really believe it. Meanwhile, inevitably, the actual physical world around them, the world that the rest of us inhabit day to day, crumbles at high speed. And you're seeing it now everywhere. Just today, in the face of skyrocketing energy prices, the White House announced it may shut down yet another pipeline. 
First, it was Keystone XL that happened immediately. This time, the Biden administration liked to close what's called the Line 5 pipeline. You may not have heard of that, but it's vital to this country. The pipeline moves more than half a million barrels of desperately needed energy every day from Canada to Michigan. Shut that down? Wait to see what happens to gas prices. They're already at record highs. So if you're not rich, this is going to make your life much worse. And everyone knows it. So no normal administration would even consider doing something like this at a moment like this. Shutting down a pipeline in the middle of an energy crisis? No, it's too destructive. But here's the thing. From an ideologue's perspective, destruction is the whole point. Burn down Wendy's, loot Macy's, defund the police, close the schools, shut down the energy grid, tear it all down. Scrape the pad so we can put up something new and perfect. As they often put it, build back better. The problem with thinking like this, there are many problems, but the core problem is that you tend to ignore the suffering of the people who still live in your country pre-utopia. You don't care about them, and they know you don't care about them. That dynamic is a huge problem. It makes societies, particularly supposedly democratic societies, very volatile. Wise leaders understand this, so they are very careful to pretend that they care. But not childish ideologues. Childish ideologues just laugh in the face of your suffering. Here's Jennifer Granholm, for example, our new energy secretary, snickering about rising gas prices. What is the Granholm plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> Oh my God, <laughs> that is hilarious. Would that I had the magic wand on this. Doing something to save middle-class Americans from rising energy prices, quote, that is hilarious, says the energy secretary. You can just imagine Louis XVI talking like this right before the French Revolution. It does make you wonder how long this can continue. Candace Owens is the host of Candace on The Daily Wire, and we're grateful to have her now. Candace, great to see you. So they are intentionally making things worse because tearing down what we have is a prerequisite to building utopia. I, I think that is the answer to what we're seeing. That's exactly correct. And this is an especially sensitive topic for me today because I spent the earlier part of the day speaking to a, a North Korean defector. And I, I was actually horrified hearing her speak about what she lived through while she was in North Korea and understanding that, you know, what they're really trying to do right here in America is build exactly that model where the state controls and owns and operates everything. You will have nothing and you will be happy because you have served some higher purpose, some higher government, some higher idea, which you're talking about, these ideologues, some higher idea, green new energy. You did it for your planet. You need to have nothing. You need to shut down these pipelines. You're not going to be able to afford to fill up gas, but look at you. You should be proud because now this is a part of the Green New Plan. And by the way, if you want anything, you've got to worship government. This is the whole reason why when you talk about what is the thing that connects these attack of the education system, why are they dumbing down kids? Why are they being so horrible about families? Why do they want parents, why do they want children turning to government and not to their parents for answers? Well, one thing that ties this all is that they don't want there to be anything but the state in your individual lives. In fact, one of the things that this North Korean effect 
Becker told me was that there was no concept of love, right? She said, we don't, we don't have words like stress. We don't have words like social justice uh, in, in Korean. She's like, there's no concept of this in the state because they don't want you to even think about that because you're supposed to know that this is how things are supposed to be. Every movie that they're allowed to watch in North Korea, and this really terrified me, the only concept of anybody dying is for the state. The highest honor is for the state. We're seeing right now, and people thought this was a radical concept years ago. This is a Republican talking point. It's not. We are seeing America being radically transformed into a communist country. That is what is happening right now. People need to wake up to this, Tucker. I cannot say it enough because it's happening quickly. How have they done it? They needed an existential crisis. Well, COVID-19 is their never-ending existential crisis. This is why we have to take everything that you own. This is why we have to shut down your businesses. This is why you can't earn a living while we take trillions for ourselves because we're here to help. No, we're not. We're here to take over every aspect of your lives and welcome you to a socialist reverie. It just feels like the cost of this is getting really high. You can feel underneath. I mean, there are a lot of signs here without being too specific, but you can kind of feel the society going sideways underneath. I mean, you, you could see actual unrest. That's the last thing anybody wants. Do you think they're aware that they could be putting too much pressure on the population? I think they're aware, but I don't think they're scared. You know, I think this is something that's been going on, going on for a very long time. It didn't begin with Joseph Biden. We know that, you know, Hillary Clinton would have been a person that helped to catalyze this had she have gotten, had she had become our president, but she didn't get that. And they felt like Trump actually stopped their plans. You know, they started this process very slowly and nobody really was awake to it. I certainly wasn't. I thought, okay, maybe, maybe we are just trying to do some socially good things. Maybe they are just trying to help everybody out. But then suddenly when Trump was in office, it became very apparent that something else was happening in this country you know this this obsessive folk this obsession and focus on racism on white supremacy on making yeah. children say look and anything that happens in this in this country is the fault of racism not the obvious fault of what's standing in your face which is that it is the fault of government every hardship that we're facing right now in this country is because of the government we're not building back anything better right now tucker and americans need to wake up to that fact candace owens thanks so much appreciate terrible copy of that it's not a bug. It is by design. Everything they're doing is by design. He doesn't even know what he's saying. He, do, I mean, the best example is Pelosi. Do you think she believes anything she's about to say? Let me just now um, just say that led by our delegation, the United States Congress is showing the world true climate leadership. We're proud of our president. He was one of the first people in Congress in 1986 to introduce legislation to address the climate crisis. He takes great pride in that. He's worked on it ever since and now in the lead as president of the United States. He knows, as we all do, this is all about the children leaving a world where they can be healthy, more secure, and more in reach of their fulfillment. With the current president and the giant turnaround challenges he faces between now in the midterm elections exactly one year from today. Our brand new CNN poll releasing right now shows a deepening Biden slump. A majority of Americans disapprove of his performance so far. And many see the president is not focusing enough time on the issues that matter most to them. If you compare Mr. Biden to Donald Trump or Barack Obama at this point, history suggests a Republican midterms route is in the offing. But, and this is a very important but, the president did just get one big win in Congress and the Biden team believes a second agenda win is coming and coming very soon. So Team Biden is betting his numbers are about to improve. If you're a Democrat and you want to keep control of Congress, they better. Let's walk through them. And let's start with the North Star of American politics, the president's approval rating, 
48% of Americans approve right now of the job President Biden is doing. 52%, a majority of you now disapprove of the job the president is doing. Here's another way to look at that as the disapproval goes up. Look at this. Back in March, 4 in 10 Americans disapproved. Now a majority, 52%. You see the steady progression rise of the president's disapproval rate. That's one way to see the intensity is on the other side. You might have just seen that last Tuesday's elections. The intensity is on disapproval. Here's another way to look at it. How about the percentage of Americans who strongly approve of the president's job performance? Well, that was 34 percent. More than a third of Americans strongly approved of the president's job performance back in April. That number is now down to 15 percent, 15 percent as the president's numbers go down. Here's the problem. Many Americans see a disconnect between what the president focuses on and what they are most worried about. 42 percent of Americans say, yes, the president has the right priorities. But look at this number. Nearly six in 10 Americans think the president is not spending enough time on the issues that they believe are most important to the country. Nearly six in 10 Americans believe that. And here's how the divide, if you look at it, if you look more closely at that number. Yes, the president still has strong approval among Democrats, but even among Democrats, even among Democrats, members of his own party, those who believe he's focused on the right priorities, down from 90 percent in April to 75 percent now. The president also is losing the middle of the American electorate. 52 percent back in April said the president had the right priorities. That's down to 36 percent now and a dip. He never had Republicans to begin with. But even that is down a little bit. Now, if you put these numbers to Team Biden, they would say this. Yes, we had a very tough year in the COVID pandemic, in a tough economy. Team Biden insists this will get better soon. That's CNN admitting it. She's saying this while CNN is in there. Biden doesn't even know what tree equity is. Biden doesn't know any of this shit. He didn't run on it. He said anti-oil stuff, and we're going to get rid of our dependency on fossil fuel because he knew he could get the fucking brain-dead far left to fucking vote for him. They all just recite bumper sticker. And it would be just okay if it was just them. I'd have no problem if it was just them because America could root it out and they would just say, okay, these idiots, I'm not voting for them anymore. They need to move on. We're going in a different direction. But they're so cocky because they know they can work the polls. They can have these blue states continue with the illegal change of fucking election policies because nobody went back and flipped it back if they own a damn house. If it's all damn, they kept it. They kept all that bullshit. They will accept money from Facebook to come in and get people to the polls and run the poll, which is totally not anybody believes our elections should be done privatizing elections really it's spilling to everything and nothing is more evident of the woke infestation of our country than the kyle rittenhouse case Kenosha shooter Kyle Rittenhouse. He murdered two people, by the way. Rittenhouse is basically what you would have had in a school shooter. He's a 17-year-old kid. He shouldn't have had a gun. He crossed state lines to supposedly protect property. No, he was going out to shoot people. Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old vigilante. Kyle Rittenhouse, the vigilante. Kyle Rittenhouse, the armed teenage vigilante. A 17-year-old vigilante, arguably a domestic terrorist, picked up a rifle, drove to a different state to shoot people. Kyle Rittenhouse. A guy who's deeply racist went with weapons to a Black Lives Matter protest looking to get in trouble. He did. He murdered a couple of people. Rittenhouse, uh, the 17 year old kid, just running around shooting and killing protesters. You see the 17 year old who was radicalized by Trumpism, took his AR-15 to Kenosha 
and became a killer. A white, Trump-supporting, MAGA-loving, uh, Blue Lives Matter, social media uh, uh, partisan, 17 years old, picks up a gun, drives from one state to another with the intent to shoot people. A 17-year-old boy mm. who drove across state lines with an AR-15 and started uh, shooting people up, including a guy with a skateboard. Kyle Rittenhouse, who has killed protesters, unarmed protesters. Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old that went with a weapon into the middle of uh, protests uh, and then provoked people and then shot and killed them. Kyle Rittenhouse is the enemy. A boy from out of state drives up to the state with an AR-15 around his neck, shoots right and kills yeah. a couple of people. Uh, shooting wildly, running around, uh, acting like uh, rent-a-cop. Drove across state lines armed with a rifle to go and shoot people. What a dark uh, dystopian scene where a 17-year-old boy is carrying around a rifle, running around and, and gunning down protesters. Say this improperly. Have you ever relied on Marcy's law not to execute a search warrant since it's gone into effect? We've had conversations uh, in the aftermath, but I don't recall not searching one solely on that basis. So this is, if I'm fair, one of it is called using Marcy's law as the basis for not doing it. Correct. And it's the only one that you recall ever getting a direction from a prosecutor handling the case not to do it. Pursuant to Mercy's law, yes. Okay. Now, you, um, being the lead detective on the case, you also had an opportunity uh, to try to interview Gage Grosskreutz uh, about a month or so. The 24th, September 24th. Okay. And certainly he's an important, in your mind at that point, he's an important piece in the case, right? Correct. And so you set up a, a, a time to get his statement, fair? I, I, I don't think I was one that set it up, but there was a, an agreed upon meeting time, correct? Had you already reviewed, if you recall, his original statement to uh, Officer Birch? Yeah, I had. And had you reviewed the video in the case as well, involving Mr. Grosskreutz? Yeah. So you, you knew that he had lied about dropping his gun, correct? There was definitely a discrepancy between what the video showed us and what his original statement to Officer Birch showed. And when you interview Mr. Grosskreutz um, in September, once you kind of get to the meat and potatoes about what had happened with him, he refused to answer your questions. Is that right? He consulted with his attorney, and yeah, we did not get all the all of our questions answered. 
I ain't even gonna name the people that I know that's up in the, in the Kenosha, I mean, in the Kenosha trial. But there's cameras in there. Yep. It's definitely cameras up in there and there's definitely right. people taking pictures of the juries and everything like that. We know what's going on. So we need the same results, man. We need the same results. Justice for Dante Wright, justice for Austin. They have their brown shirts. That was a cut of what the media said about a 17-year-old kid who was getting being, we're going to kill you. Because it was politically good for the election. And the entire case is garbage fire. It's completely garbage fire. If you want to understand why no one trusts the media, today's headlines, literally what these people say on the stand shows that all of this is bullshit. The whole case never should have gone to court, but they had to do it. Lone survivor shot by Kyle Rittenhouse at Kenosha protest testifies he thought he was going to die. That's not the thing that came out. It was that he was pointing a gun. Gage Krasinski says he feared for his life before Kyle Rittenhouse shot him during Kenosha unrest. The man who survived being shot by Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, last August testified on Monday that he never tried to kill the heavily armed teenager. In fact, he said as a teen murder trial, he was actually trying to surrender to him. The problem is all these people either are child molesters, domestic violence people. I mean, Rosa, who's on the scene, Breaks it all down. The, the entire case is garbage. It's fucking garbage. He was carrying a gun he wasn't even supposed to have. He's a felon. But, you know, nobody's going to talk about that. And then a cousin to Floyd. They're taking pictures. The freaking judge said... I was in court on Friday and it did not cease this activity. Monday said they were concerned for the safety, having their identities revealed. He could be taken big on social media, but this is a very serious claim. And the judge literally put out that people are taking pictures at a bus stop. But because this is so important, here's Tucker again breaking it down. Major Kyle Rittenhouse is on trial right now in Kenosha, Wisconsin. You may have read about it. Lots of people are watching it. It's an event packed with all kinds of political and social implications, but it's also, as a pure legal matter, maybe the single most bizarre court proceeding ever caught on camera. The outline of the case itself is pretty straightforward. Kyle Rittenhouse went to the BLM riots in Kenosha last summer armed with a rifle. While he was there, he shot three people. He killed two of them. The prosecution claims this was murder. Kyle Rittenhouse says it was self-defense. So it's pretty simple. But here's the amazing thing. Every single witness the prosecution has called so far has wound up making Kyle Rittenhouse's case for him. And that would include even Gage Grosskreutz. He's the avowed communist who Rittenhouse shot in the arm. Grosskreutz was supposed to be the prosecution's star witness in this trial. But once he got on the stand, he admitted that Kyle Rittenhouse only shot him after he pointed a loaded gun in the boy's face. Watch. That's a photo of you, yes? Yes. Okay. Um, that's Mr. Rittenhouse? Correct. Okay. Now, you'd agree your firearm is pointed at Mr. Rittenhouse, correct? Yes. Okay. And once your firearm is pointed at Mr. Rittenhouse, 
that's when he fires his gun. Yes? No. Sir, look, I don't want to... Does this look like right now your arm is being shot? That looks like my bicep being vaporized, yes. Okay. And it's being vaporized because you're pointing your gun directly at him. Yes? Yes. Okay, so... When you were standing three to five feet from him with your arms up in the him, advanced on him with your gun, now your hands down, pointed at him, that he fired, right? Correct. So that's kind of it right there. That's pretty much the end of the trial because when someone runs up and points a loaded gun in your face, you are allowed to shoot that person. That is called self-defense. That's the rule. It has been the rule throughout human history in every society on earth since people lived in caves. According to the prosecution star witness, self-defense is exactly what happened here. So as a matter of law, in addition to custom and common sense, Gage Grosskreutz just proved that Kyle Rittenhouse acted to defend himself from harm. So we're done. Oath that when he sued the city of Kenosha for $10 million, which for some reason he thought he was owed, he failed to mention the fact that he was carrying a firearm and pointing it in people's faces. Devastating, really. But the whole trial has been like that. Disaster after disaster after disaster for the prosecution. At one point, a detective, a witness called by the prosecution, implicated the prosecution in a cover-up. The detective admitted that the police did not search Gage Grosskreutz's phone after the shooting, even though they had a valid warrant to do that. Well, why didn't they? Well, they didn't because the prosecution ordered the police not to look at the phone. And that had never happened before. And you can see why. It's baffling, really. Why would a government lawyer want less evidence in a case? According to the detective on the stand, the prosecutor cited something called Marcy's Law. Watch. Have you ever relied on Marcy's Law not to execute a search warrant since it's gone into effect? We've had conversations uh, in the aftermath, but I don't recall not searching one solely on that. Enormous political pressure to do that, so that's exactly what he did. It goes without saying this is not how American justice is supposed to work. But thankfully, like most webs of deception, it collapsed under scrutiny in a big way. Watch this unintentionally hilarious exchange with yet another prosecution witness. This is Richie McGinnis of The Daily Caller. McGinnis was reporting from Kenosha that night. He appeared live on the show, in fact. He was just inches away when Rittenhouse shot a convicted child molester called Joseph Rosenbaum. Now, why was a convicted child molester at a riot on behalf of BLM? That's a whole nother story. A lot of people like that there that night, it turns out. But the prosecutor hoped to portray the shooting of this child molester, Rosenbaum, as an act of senseless violence committed by a psychopath, Kyle Rittenhouse. Here's what Richie McGinnis said he saw. I mean, you have no idea what Mr. Rosenbaum was ever thinking at any point in his life. You have never been inside his head. You never met him before. You don't know. I've, I've never even, I've never exchanged words with him, if that's what your question is. So your interpretation of what he was trying to do or what he was intending to do or anything along those lines is complete guesswork, isn't it? Um, well, he said, fuck you, and then he reached for this. Yelling and screaming, and I would say, dude, back up. 
just chill. I don't know what your problem is. And he goes, you know what? Oh. The defendant was there. So, yes. I'm going to kill you, says the child molester. Yeah. It went on like this, on and on and on. At one point, another prosecution witness testified that Anthony Huber, who was, you won't be surprised to learn at this point, a convicted domestic abuser, was bashing Kyle Rittenhouse in the head with a skateboard when he was shot. So once again, we have the textbook definition of self-defense. Not much of a prosecution. In fact, at no point did the prosecution make its own case. They made Kyle Rittenhouse's case open and shut. But you'd know, never know any of this from watching the coverage of the trial. NBC News, for example, just ran this thoroughly dishonest headline, quote, shooting victim at Rittenhouse trial said he thought he was going to die. State, a boy from out of state, out of state, drives up to the state with an AR-15 around his neck, shoots right and kills yeah. a couple of people, uh, shooting wildly, running around, uh, acting like uh, rent-a-cop. And it's not good that a 17-year-old vigilante, arguably a domestic terrorist, picked up a rifle, drove to a different state to shoot people. Yeah, he drove to a different state to shoot people. That's what happened, really. Open up your brain, let's pour some more lies in it. Actually, in point of fact, Kyle Rittenhouse went to Kenosha to clean up the filth left by the rioting Biden voters, the child molester included. Turns out the morning of the shooting, Kyle Rittenhouse was videotaped cleaning anarchist graffiti off the walls of a local high school. That seems like good citizenship, actually. Naturally elected Democrats denounced him as a racist. Diana Presley described Rittenhouse as a, quote, white supremacist domestic terrorist, echoing the MSNBC morning show. Elon Omar did the same. Joe Biden, on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, called the 17-year-old, quote, a white supremacist. Now, for the record, the men Rittenhouse shot were all white. Kind of a funny kind of white supremacy there. It turns out that like so much of the hyperventilating moral outrage we suffer through every single day, the tale of Kyle Rittenhouse is a myth. It was concocted by the industrial media lie machine purely for political effect. Having heard the evidence here, it is not even a close call. Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. So if you wanted a guilty verdict in this trial, you would probably have to threaten the jury. And as it turns out, some people are planning to do just that. I ain't even gonna name the people that I know that's up in the, in the Kenosha, I mean, in the Kenosha trial. But there's cameras in there. Yep. It's definitely cameras up in there, and there's definitely right. people taking pictures of the juries and everything like that. We know what's going on. So we need the same results, man. We need the same results. Justice for Dante Wright. So apparently the guy you just saw talking was a friend of George Floyd's. What are the odds of that? So videotape the jurors. If they're afraid, they'll do exactly what we want. That's what he's saying. It's not a small thing. Jury intimidation is a serious felony in this country. But as far as we know, the Department of Justice isn't doing anything to stop it in this case. They're all busy looking for Ashley Biden's diary. They've got priorities. So it looks like it's continuing. Today at the Rittenhouse trial, a judge told jurors that someone was taking their pictures at a bus stop outside the courthouse. That, of course, is a threat. We'll see if it works. In the meantime, our friend Jason Whitlock has just written a new piece on this trial. He joins us tonight to assess. Jason Whitlock, thanks so much for coming on. So you followed this from the beginning. What do you make of it so far? Uh, Tucker, cowardice and fear rolls downhill just like human waste. And now we have, I believe, 18 jurors in the crosshair because men have failed and this society has failed to uphold the rule of law. We now have thugs 
in control of our society. And so a prosecuting, uh, the, when the prosecutors don't do their job, when the media doesn't do its job, when politicians don't do their jobs, 18 ordinary citizens are now in the crosshairs. This is a sham prosecution. I don't believe the prosecution team even believes in its case. I don't believe they're even trying to put on a great case. They're just trying to protect themselves and point the finger at, if you don't like the verdict, it's those 18 ordinary American citizens. Focus your animosity on them. We prosecuted this child for murder, even though we knew there was no chance of getting a conviction, you guys go deal with the jury, you threaten, harass, dox them, go to their house. Fear and cowardice is rolling downhill and stomping on the heads of regular American citizens. To sit here and to listen to these MSNBC analysts who sat around all of 2020, you go ahead and riot and loot. You go ahead and do whatever, you're justified in all that rioting and looting, and then be surprised that a 17-year-old would get out over his skis, overstep what he should be doing. Look at all this chaos. Look at grown men fail to be men and lead this country in a proper direction. So a 17-year-old kid picks up a gun and says, I'm going to get involved. It's not, it's not Kyle Rittenhouse's fault. It's our fault. The adults, we're not leading this country in a proper way. We've allowed chaos and anarchy to take over. We've allowed the thugs to run our society. And then all the elected people, the politicians that are making money, the millionaires sitting on TV, tisk tisking, they're all sitting back and 18 jurors have a grenade in their lap. If they come back with the verdict that should be come back here, not guilty, they're in the crosshairs. They're in jeopardy. Joy Reid, uh, Morning Joe, they're all going to sit back in their gated communities, millions of dollars, and talk about it. And, oh, my God, isn't this sad? They're all going to be safe. Those 18 jurors, good luck to you yeah. guys. No, that's exactly right. I wouldn't want to be one of them. Why? I mean, I, I think we racialize things that shouldn't be racialized a lot. But in this case, it's completely baffling because everybody's the same color. What, how is there a racial element to a monochromatic event like this? Because everything in this country is interpreted through a racial lens, but led by the mainstream media. We've been trained, programmed. The mainstream media and social media have trained us to look at everything through a racial lens. You have... Four white people, Kyle Rittenhouse and yeah. three victims or three people. They're all white. And yeah. we're still, so now we're more concerned about white on white crime. And somehow we've racialized that. But black on black crime, let's ignore it. Let's never talk about it. Anybody that brings it up is a sellout, an Uncle Tom, a racist. But this white on white crime, this is now a national case and somehow says is a referendum on race in America. It's a joke, Tucker. It is a joke because it never stopped. Three media takeaways. None of them literally what the case is about. None of it. We'll get to that in a second. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. The, the farting. Gunmaker Remington moves to Georgia. $100 million, 856 jobs. 
Nobody wants to talk about it. Camellia hasn't stopped talking about buying breaking wind. The media wouldn't cover it. It's everywhere. Do you think Trump farting would have been news? And then we have the dog whistle. This is just a smidge, once again. This is all the media has done since the Virginia loss. Everything is racist. Everything is racist according to me. Everything is racist. Everything is racist. Everything is racist according to me. Everything is racist. Joining me now to talk about all of this and more, our audience favorite justice correspondent at The Nation and my pal, Ellie Mistal. Ellie, so happy uh, that you're here because um, I wanted to talk about these Supreme Court cases because I feel like the gun case is a big deal. Um, I'm going to leapfrog over that for a second because um, in this Ahmad Arbery case uh, where the jury um, is all white and you had these men declaring themselves, deputizing themselves, uh, somebody to, you know, shoot this man. When I was watching this case, I thought about the Supreme Court Second Amendment case and expanding gun rights. And I think about the three men who are accused of killing Ahmaud Arbery um, having more access to guns. It does not seem like a good combination. Yeah, I think this actually links up with your prior segment and the Biden press conference, because what the Democrats' theory of the case is, is that the white non-college educated voter cares about things like kitchen table issues, like infrastructure and pipes and how many gallons of milk you can put on the table. I contend that what they care about is using their guns on black people and getting away with it. That's what they... Republicans right now appear to have a containment strategy for Trump, an uneasy containment strategy. They don't want to purge him from the party, and that should be noted. They're keeping him inside because they want his movement to come along. Donna called this a wake-up call. My question as a reporter is, to what end? Is this an alarm clock or a siren? Because Bob Woodward and I reported that House Majority Whip James Clyburn, he said beyond all the demographic changes and the voter changes, democracy is on fire, Clyburn said. Republicans are on the march in all these states changing voter laws. And now you have an election in Virginia, New Jersey, and elsewhere that's putting Democrats on the ropes. Are Democrats going to do what they did in 2020, which is to activate their core voters, voters of color, older voters, and get them out to the polls, not just on the Build Back Better agenda, but on core issues of democracy? That is a lingering question for this party. Okay. Martha, I'm really skeptical, though, that Republicans can copy this Glenn Youngkin Did she answer playbook. your question there? <laughs> I think Republicans, they keep saying they're going to follow the Glenn Youngkin blueprint, but how can they all be Glenn Youngkin? They've spent well, five years it, it, in the thrall of Donald Trump. It, it, exactly, sir, and I was going to take that to you. You talk about education. Not every candidate, right. probably no Democratic candidate will ever again say what Terry McAuliffe did, which parents shouldn't have a say in schools. So how big an issue is that and how do they keep this going? Yeah. So one, something Republicans should learn from this race, all of them. High turnout doesn't hurt Republicans. Stop trying to limit voting in these states. It is not bad for Republicans, and it's not necessarily good for Democrats, clearly. Second, Republicans have the benefit right now that they do speak a language that voters understand. You're talking about 
pregnant people and Latinx, and that is unrecognizable to so many of these voters. If Republicans can do what they're doing in these rural places, running up the vote, not at 70 percent, but at 80 and 90 percent, those are numbers that Democrats cannot come back from in a lot of states, most states. Um, and, and last, yes, uh, the, the Trump model in Virginia and in New Jersey won't work in 2022. Donald Trump is not going to sit on the sidelines. Those Senate races are not going to work that way. He's going to want to be in or out. You've got to make the call. And you also are not going to get candidates like Glenn Youngkin, who were chosen through a convention with ranked choice voting from a party that wanted the most electable. And you had a very bracing assessment of the role of of whiteness and white and 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 white grievance in the Virginia sure. election. I would love for you to reprise that. Well, I could even go further, Jonathan. Uh, as it was said decades ago at another historical moment, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia played the race card and he played it from the bottom of the deck. And you know, that would make a statement in any state of the union. It particularly makes a statement in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Virginia, as you both know, has a glorious history. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, flawed leaders who did have a great commitment to democratic principles and the Bill of Rights in, in all three cases. But here we are now also, uh, Glenn Youngkin was perfectly uh, happy to connect with Virginia's horrible, violent, ugly history, which is centuries of slavery, white supremacy politics, the eve of the Civil War, what state of the Union had the largest number of enslaved people in this country? It was Virginia, half a million people in 1860. So all I'm saying is that anyone who operates politically or runs for office in the Commonwealth of Virginia owes it as a duty to be respectful of that tradition and not try to revive it. This connects to Republican politics back to Ronald Reagan talking about welfare queens and Richard Nixon talking about law and order. Just as infamous as Glenn Youngkin talking about Tony Morrison, a world-renowned, justifiably black woman mm -hmm. who got the Nobel <clears throat> Prize denouncing Beloved, which I'm not sure he's ever read, and using that to send not a dog whistle but an air horn to people who believe in white supremacy. And in fact, you said in, in that symposium that Virginia is the capital of white supremacy. Zerlina and Michael, but Zerlina, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it again. James Carville on wokeness. Zerlina, your reaction to that? Well, I think the use of the word woke as a pejorative is actually, it says more about the person saying that than it does about people who are so-called woke. I mean, all it, woke means that, I mean, if you reduce it down, just not being a jerk. But for Democrats and progressives to allow conservatives to turn the word woke into an epithet and weaponize it against them is a terrible mistake. And if we're yeah. talking about Virginia as an example of this, if, if woke means having a proper respect for America's ugly racial history and trying to make sure that that never happens again, anything like it, uh, woke should not be used as an epithet to, pre to prevent that happening. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Zerlina put, put her finger on it. Um, Roland, before we check out, I want to get your thoughts on Carville. Uh, we're so tight, the Biden presser uh, made us mess up, but I just got to hear your take on uh, Carville and his comments on woke speak. I need Carville to shut the F up. 
because I'm sick of these white men whining and complaining about wokeness when you don't you you like it when black folks and Latinos and young white voters and agents are voting for candidates. How about this, James Carville? How about you go learn how to cut some Lincoln Project type ads with the Democratic Party? How about creating some actual means? Where's the video this morning touting the infrastructure bill? How about you go raise money to run those ads on OAN and Fox News and Newsmax and telling those broke white folks in those various states how the infrastructure bill is going to benefit them. So I'm sorry, James. I need you to shut up and do your job and stop trying to pin it on people who are doing the work. Well, you know, Roland has strong thoughts. I have to say, um, I think a lot of us feel that way, though, Ro. I, and I think it's going to be hard for a lot of people as the changing demographics. You're looking at the screen right now. Um, this is the rising majority of America. And when this group there of people go. starts getting centered, it's going to be uncomfortable for a lot of people. But after we've been uncomfortable for a long time. At this point in history, we're comfortable making people uncomfortable. So thank you to my That's amazing right. panel, uh, Lynn Wynn, Roland Martin, and Jess Morales-Rakettle. You guys are rock stars, rock star panel. Uh, thanks for the Virginia governor's race, is that the GOP playbook for the midterms basically ignore Donald Trump? Well, I hope the Democrats continue to do what Terry McAuliffe did. Uh, Terry McAuliffe ran his campaign. Uh, he did two but things. But you don't have control he over that. You only Donald have control Trump over, say, the Glenn Youngkin in this case. So I'm asking you as someone from the Republican perspective, because I'm pretty sure you're not advising Democratic candidates, is this the playbook for Republicans? I think I think what I think what Democrats are going to continue to do is talk about Donald Trump. I think Republicans are going to continue to talk about issues. Glenn Youngkin won his race because he talked about issues, and I think that's what's going to happen. What we're going to see is just like in just like in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe wanted to say, "Oh, there was nothing about critical race theory." We know that it, we know it's true. Parents know it's been, their kids are being indoctrinated with critical race theory in Virginia, and the Democrats wanted to deny it. I mean, and so well, it's not the parents in the curriculum. showed up because they don't like being lied to. I mean, just, just to be clear, it's not, it's not in the curriculum um, in Virginia. Uh, just, oh, just to oh, be... Oh, Brian, would you like me to... Here, let me just read you a few things. Just to... In 2015, while Terry McAuliffe was governor, the Virginia Department of Education promoted incorporating a critical race theory lens in education. You can still find it on the Department of Education's website. still there. In February uh, 2019, a superintendent not, memo for the Virginia the Department of Education promoted Senator, critical race theory and not, the idea of white fragility. It's not, it's not part of the curriculum. Yesterday. It's um, still I, there, I do Brianna. want to ask you, just to be clear about Brianna, where you are. Let's, let's all agree. Just, they were trying to indoctrinate kids. Terry McAuliffe denied it. It's still on the website. It is, this is happening. And I hope Democrats continue to say it's not happening because parents are dumb. They can see it. Your parents are dumb, you said? Aren't dumb? No, they're not. I think parents are smart. My parents didn't have much of a formal education, but they cared about what I learned. This, parents I, are smart. I just, I just want to be clear. Okay, the, Senator, the I just Virginia have to be clear. Virginia Department of Education not... promoted critical race theory, and, and Terry McAuliffe said they didn't. I hope okay, Democrats listen, keep doing that all Senator? across the country. But in a new way to try to counter this media, here's a segment on the media's bias. I'm going to do two in a row. One is about media racism, and one is Molly Hemingway. As a parent in Virginia, what do you think about the way that most of the media portrayed Glenn Youngkin's campaign as a racist dog whistle aimed at parents of school kids? Well, usually the media 
and their left-wing bias helps Democratic candidates. But in this case, their groupthink did not help the Democratic candidate because education had been a huge issue for Virginia parents. It wasn't just about the hateful and racist critical race theory that's infecting so many schools. It was also about COVID shutdowns. And it was also about something Terry McAuliffe himself said weeks into, you know, weeks before Election Day, where he said parents didn't really have a role in their kids' education. And the media downplayed that or ignored that until it was too late, and he ends up losing. Harold, I think some in the media now understand that schools and parental choice are a pretty potent issue. Um, but there's some pundits on your side who are still sort of clinging to this narrative that Youngkin ran a racist campaign and wants to ban books when, in fact, he wanted to give parents the right to opt out from sexually explicit books. What do you make of the fact that some are still pushing this? First off, happy Sunday. Thanks for having me. I think it's, it's, it's wrongheaded. Uh, and it's certainly not looking forward for anyone, particularly members of my party, uh, to ra racialize this uh, too quickly. I think we have a tendency in all of politics to point to race uh, very fast. I think the, the, the more likely answer is that Glenn Youngkin met voters where they were in Virginia. This is a state that has voted Democrat uh, for governor, for president, uh, many, 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 many times over the last several years. So they just in all of, all of a sudden become racist. I think Molly's point about parents, the parental involvement of parents, and I'm one too, over the last year and a half in our kids' education, I think probably some parents resented the fact that there were those that thought that they didn't have good ideas, uh, that they didn't have uh, not only good ideas, but the, the willingness and the right to, to share those ideas. So I think Democrats ought to look at that and look at the fact that we are in power in Washington, the Senate, the House, the White House. People are a little sick of us playing with food in our plates as opposed to delivering for them. That's the takeaway for me, and I think we can correct that over the next year. Not just playing with food, but throwing a lot of food. And I'm glad you both agree that these are legitimate issues that we can debate, uh, but they're not necessarily. Yeah, Misha Alcindor is actually not a reporter. I mean, that is what her position is supposed to be. She's a hardcore activist. She's kind of an embarrassment to the journalistic profession because of these questions she asks. Not just there, where she's asking, as an activist, for help for the, her Democratic Party allies. She did that at the very first press conference on March 25th, when she said that our entire border crisis was a result of Joe Biden being such a wonderful uh, person. This is in such stark contrast to what she did during the previous administration, where she was cartoonishly hostile each and every encounter she had with President Trump. And that's something that people can understand being adversarial toward a president and then being adversarial toward the next president. But the way that she flips from being such extreme, well, she doesn't really flip at all. She's a Democratic partisan activist and a propagandist, regardless of who's holding the office. But it's, it's, we need answers. We need someone to hold this administration accountable. We do have one party control in D.C., as Harold notes. And we need we need some people to push back against what's happening. Harold, uh, I should note that James Carville, uh, among others, I uh, said, I believe on PBS, that the, some Democrats need to go to a woke detox center. But, you know, it is true that critical race theory, as narrowly defined, is not taught in Virginia public schools. I'm not shaking your head, but I want to get your, you here first. Uh, if, in a more broader sense, though, I think that journalists who considered uh, Young in a long shot in this campaign uh, are really missed the fact that parents were upset about mask mandates, about schools being closed for years under COVID and so forth, and that perhaps parents felt powerless. Take on whatever those you want. Even the grocery tax, which uh, the, the governor-elect Youngkin raised near the end of the campaign, resonated with parents and voters. I'd push back a little bit on Molly. I think that Yamish is a journalist. I think she may have a different point of view than perhaps Molly, maybe even me at times. And I do, I do like the fact you're that she's been as a... You're both commentators. You're, you're right, paid to have a point of view. 
but she's as aggressive with one president as she was with the other. That being said, I, I love Molly Hemingway. She was as aggressive. I, I like Harold Ford Jr. He's from Tennessee. I voted for him once. But they're not as aggressive with Biden. We got Snopes going out. And this, this is real shit. Um, Snopes going out, literally doing fact checks on Biden farting. And you saw the Keller in the racist segment. When presented with facts, they just doubled down. They don't acknowledge the facts. Totally unrelated. This was last night on MSNBC about the Rittenhouse trial. The note here that we have not heard from the defense yet, but I mean, what do you make of the case that the prosecution has made so far? You know, Craig, what I make of this more than anything else is poor witness preparation of Grosskreutz yesterday. It should have come as no surprise that he approached Paul Rittenhouse with a gun. It should have come as no surprise that the jury might interpret that as being aggressive. And let me tell you why that's a problem. If you had an active scooter, shooter in a school and a teacher raised a gun at that shooter, no one would think, oh, the teacher's in the wrong. You'd immediately know the teacher was in the right to defend the students against the active shooter. But for some reason, people didn't see Grosskreutz that way when he testified yesterday, who are watching the trial from the outside. You had a situation where Rittenhouse is running down the street with a gun. People are pointing at him saying, hey, he shot those people. He shot those people. Under those circumstances, Grosskreutz was justified in using lethal force, but the people watching the trial don't see it that way. And that perception is what carries a day with the jury. That's what makes me concerned about the outcome of this case. David Henderson, uh, we'll leave it there with you. Thank you, sir. Gabe, keep us posted on the trial itself. Uh, Gabe Gutierrez on the ground force there in Kenosha. Also, the He was like a school shooter trying to stop a school shooter. No, he wasn't. They were trying to kill the kid. They're on video saying they tried to kill the kid. More Democrats watch Fox than CNN now. That's from the Hill. Melissa McKenzie. Well, Julie Kelly 2 threat is terrifying. A J6 defendant in solitary skull fracture after being beamed by guards. No charges in prison since January. Status hearing up now for Ryan Samsel. He's the guy in the red hat who speaks to Joe Biggs and Ray Epps before he confronts police on the west side of the Capitol and breaches barrier. Samsel been in jail, denied bail since January, transferring to D.C. Gitmo to North Neck Jail, where he was attacked, two in both jails. Defense attorney says Samsel has been in solitary since mid-September. Also, another detainee not receiving needed medical care for injuries. Tim Kelly, another gem of the Trump appointee presiding. Dispute over who has possession of Samsel's medical records. Kelly wants all records turned over to Samsel. Long list of records haven't been released. He's ordered jail officials to turn over documents to Samsel's attorney. We're frustrated. Two weeks ago, still no records. Another judge refusing to enforce his own order. It's been months, attorney says, since emergency order for records. Kelly refused to act. Allo... LOL, he was surprised he didn't get a response. He assumed progress has been made, that these Trump judges are huge disappointments. Kelly continues to disapprove pre-trial detention for J6ers, even nonviolent ones, with dramatic rhetoric about capital protests. He's placing jail officials who, like in Worrell case, won't release medical records to attorney or defendants. He again orders records to be turned over. Kelly has no judicial experience. It shows makes McFadden sound like a genius. DOG claims to do everything in his power to get documents. Kelly is a Federalist Society recommendation and, like McFadden, a former prosecutor, D.C. attorney. And it goes on, still in lockdown, crushed skull, 
There's nothing on that. Judgment Day comes in D.C.'s solar fraud case as owner is sentenced to $1 billion scam. And that was the Obama administration. So every time they start talking about these batteries and shit, just remember Granholm has major stock in them. Major stock. Then we get to our media. Let, let's play our media segment. I do want to switch topics, though, because we've also seen President Biden come under fire over reports of payments to migrant families separated at the border. How is the White House explaining this? Yeah, this is fascinating, Whit, because the first time the president was asked about it, he said it was a garbage report, seemed to dismiss the idea that these payments would be going out at all. But he uh, just yesterday clarified and said that he was referring to the size of the reported payment. At that time, it was being reported that we're talking about $450,000 uh, per incident of a migrant separation. That ignited an uproar when it was reported, and President Biden said that his quibble is not with the idea of those payments, but with the size. He says it actually would cost taxpayer money to, to not have a settlement of some sort, even if it's a smaller amount than that. Uh, either way, it's going to be a controversial decision if and when the Justice Department comes to a settlement. President Biden, though, is saying that it's the only way to right the wrong that was enacted by. Which we should define yeah, the word woke. Define what is it. woke, first of all? Let me tell you how I define it, okay? It's not woke to agitate fiercely for police reform, okay? That is a moral emergency. So when Senator Tim Scott wrote a bill advocating police reform, he was not being woke. That is something that all of us should be talking about. We desperately need police reform. It is not woke to be agitating for a more equitable education system. Hmm. It is woke to be calling for defunding the police. It is woke to be saying that, you know, merit-based education is somehow white supremacy. The word woke actually comes from sociologists, Brian. Hmm. It was appropriated after, you know, it originally was used as black slang in order to refer to things like systemic racism hmm. at the state level. Again, something that it's very important that we talk about. But sociologists have noted something they call the great awakening. <laughs> And what they're, what they're talking about is that starting around 2015, and this is something that I'm sure that you and your viewers noticed, what we saw was white liberals starting to have more extreme views on race than even people of color, the people of color that they're advocating on behalf of. They started to advocate for things like defund the police, as we saw recently. That is a view that is most closely held by highly affluent, highly educated liberal elites, while 81% of black Americans oppose defunding the police. So in my book, I'm trying to explore where did that come from? Where did this mm. great awakening come from and why did it happen? And what I argue is that it is essentially affluent white liberals using the real pain of black Americans in order to withdraw from the common good and abandon the working class of all races. That's the argument. And you refer to the woke media right up front. So what is the who or what is the woke media? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me, Brian. Are we on woke media right now? No, again, let's rely on sociologists, okay? Mm. These same sociologists trawled the archives of the New York Times, the Washington Post, even the Wall Street Journal, NPR, CNN. And what they found was, starting around 2011, 2012, an absolute skyrocketing of the use of woke words like white privilege or marginalization or oppression. These, inter these, these companies started using these words when they went digital as a way of increasing their traffic and it created this feedback loop. A massive infrastructure bill passes over the weekend and yet President Biden's approval ratings are hitting a new low. So how does the president and Democrats make sure Americans see this as a win? 
We'll ask DNC Chair Jamie Harrison about that next. The president's $1.2 trillion hard infrastructure bill, along with the October jobs report and the dropping COVID numbers, give Democrats powerful weapons ahead of the 2022 midterms. The question is, do they know how to use these weapons? I want to bring in Jamie Harrison to discuss. He's the chair of the Democratic National Committee. Jamie, you guys have been racking up massive wins. 200 million vaccinations, 5 million jobs created, a trillion dollar infrastructure bill, wages are up, the Dow is up, yet your poll numbers are down. How do you square these two things? Well, part of what we have to do is we have to double down on selling all of these achievements. I understand that Democrats don't want to seem insensitive to people who are still struggling, but those same people you're fighting for will gain absolutely nothing if you lose power. Why not celebrate the win? Well, uh, Stephanie, you will hear so much about this bill over the course of the next few days and weeks and months that you're gonna have me come back on and say, Jamie, I'm tired of hearing about the infrastructure bill. I'm tired of hearing about Build Back Better. I hear you 100%, but it's that rural voter that has turned red in a deep way. You're not just offering broadband, you're offering clean drinking water, better public transit. These are things that are going to help that forgotten American who's turned on the Democratic Party and really became Trump's base. How do you communicate with them that you're delivering? Because they're the same people that keep talking about culture wars and you're delivering, delivering them hard results. Do you need to start addressing more of these culture war issues head on? Until now, I often hear this is misinformation, um, this is nonsense, which it absolutely is. However, this misinformation and nonsense is impacting how people vote. Do you need to take a different approach to combat it? We have to. We have to call the lies out for what they are. And of course, there's still confusion on another topic as to whether or not the government will make payments to illegals. Here's what the president said on Saturday when asked about it. If, in fact, because of the, the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child, you lost your child, it's gone. You deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. So again, that was yesterday. On Wednesday, however, he said this to Fox News. Do you think that that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? If you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. So this is a garbage report? Yeah. So within an hour of that comment, the ACLU said, quote, President Biden may not have been fully briefed about the actions of his very own Justice Department and went on from there. Was he in the loop to begin with? The president's in the loop. But the president said at the beginning of his administration on a campaign trail that he would have an independent Department of Justice, that he would not direct the Department of Justice what to do. And if you go back to the question, the question was from a Fox reporter asking about whether compensation for being separated and losing a child would be an incentive to come to America. And what he was saying was that was an absurd question from the beginning. No one's coming somewhere to lose their child, to be separated from their loved one. And, and the question is so insensitive, disrespectful, that that's what he was commenting to. And I, mean, I would ask the question of you, whether you support that. I mean, at some point, we cannot, with a straight face, say that parents are willing to separate from a child uh, for a dollar amount. 
That's just not true, and, and we should not talk so, like so that. If we then, keep saying if, we're better than that, yeah. but we're not if, acting like that. If the amount's not 450000 what amount is it? That's for the de Justice Department to decide. If it shows that it saves taxpayers money, if it rights a wrong and the Justice Department determines that there is compensation that should be paid, that is an independent Justice Department. But again, the question is, we took children, the President Trump took children from their parents, and some children have never been returned. Do we think that's okay? There are others who make the case about the victims of fentanyl abuse that cross the border. There are others talk about the women who are abused along that track across the border as well. But just back to this amount of $450,000, that would be about four times the amount that we afford Gold Star families. We, we don't talk dollar amounts. That is the Department of Justice. The question uh, about whether it is an incentive to come across to the United States to be separated from your child so that you can get paid is an absurd assumption. So there will be... And question. Yeah, there will be a settlement then from this administration, that dollar amount to be determined. Am I clear on that? N no. I, I, I want to be clear about this. We do not tell the Department of Justice what to do. The Department of Justice is an independent agency. I, I understand that, but as, what you're saying is that you would so be okay if, with the payment of a certain amount, correct? I don't approve or justify what DOJ does. If DOJ determines that it saves the taxpayers money and it rights a wrong, then they will make the determination that is necessary. And I would assume if they make a determination, they'll come up with okay. what they think is an adequate dollar amount. Let's see where that ends up then. Sir, thank you for your time. Cedric Richmond, good to talk with you again. Thank you. I have a seasonal question that I apologize for in advance, but will the president be pardoning turkeys this year? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people have asked me. I'm now asking. I, I mean, it is, a, it is a regular tradition, so I'm assuming that will be happening. I don't have any news or any uh, schedule uh, to, to share with you on that particular uh, pardoning of the turkey event, uh, but uh, I'm sure that we'll have something soon. Okay, but thank you for thank you for the question. It's <laughs> just breaking from our Justice Department reporter. Um, two sources are telling Fox that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is the foreign policy advisor mentioned in the former Clinton lawyer Michael Sussman's indictment. Uh, I understand that this just came across yeah. while you're at the podium, yeah. so you haven't probably had a chance to read into that. But what is the White House comment on that? And is there any conflict here, given that there has been news around the uh, indictment? Uh, is there any conflict here that would preclude Sullivan from being able to carry out his duties? I, I, as you just said, Jackie, I'm just now hearing this, so I, I don't have a, a comment for you at this moment. I don't know anything about what you're, you're just mentioning, so I have to, to talk to our team. And there has been news around the dossier, though, over the last couple of weeks, um, and sort of this feeling that it's falling apart after the revelations that the Clinton-tied lawyer had lied to the FBI. Um, now, knowing what we know about the dossier, is there any concern that there was a lot of focus or too much focus on that uh, during the president's campaign? So, Jackie, I refer you to the Department of Justice. I'm not going to comment on that from here, from the podium. Yes. Thanks, Green. Um, what kind of outreach has the White House... There's our media betters. 
It's disrespectful to ask Biden that question to begin with, said the guy from the frickin' White House. Because once again, who the fuck are you? We know better than you. We're so much smarter than you. We know everything. Shut your filthy mouth. How dare you? How fucking dare you ask any questions? And it goes across everything. Under Trump, if supply problems were like this right now, do you think you'd have a Time magazine cover that says, um, American shoppers for breaking the supply chain? The Liberal magazine was blunt in its absurd condescension story headline, How American Shoppers Broke the Supply Chain. America has long been gobbling up more goods from overseas than we send back, but in the past year, spending has gone bonkers. The smear piece even had a subsection headline, Our buying habits are hurting the U.S. economy. Of course, Time mentioned nothing about how Biden and Federal Reserve squeezed the supply side with incentives not to work, restricting mandates, and the promise of more regulation and higher taxes. The world is a 5% inflation and supply chain disruption the CEOs say will stretch into 2022, as Wall Street Journal editorial board noted. A sore combination of astronomical government spending and money creation plus tightening regulated human interaction has resulted in too many dollars chasing too few goods, Wall Street Journal. Even more disgusting was an insult Time chose to include from a beak and Economics International Trade Advisor Jack O'Connell reportedly said Americans have become singularly impatient consumers, unlike their peers in much and uh, much of the rest of the year, the world. Usually, consumer spending is good for the economy, but the bottleneck created by America's huge appetite are becoming a problem for economic growth. The U.S. economy grew at a rate of just two percent from July September. The Commerce Department said last week, down significantly from six point seven it grew the quarter before, largely because of supply chain bottlenecks that have made it harder for consumers to buy all the things they want. Axios did one. Wipe the Washington Post did one. They all did it. They're going to protect daddy. They're going to protect daddy. Why wouldn't they? Whatever you think of the outcome tonight, one thing we all ought to be grateful for are the incredible congressional correspondents who have covered the long debate with smart insight and especially stamina. That's the New York Times after the spending bill. We got a bunch of fucking wahoos. Here's fucking Acosta. Once again, look how awesome we are. Last week, no, not in Washington. I'm talking about the Capitol 109 miles away in Richmond, Virginia. I just so appreciate your willingness to be so so helpful as we head towards uh, this next stage in Virginia's future. Now, that's how it should be done. Republican Glenn Youngkin, who beat Terry McAuliffe in the race for governor last week, met with the man he's going to replace, Democrat Ralph Northam. They had lunch. They were polite. It all seemed very cordial. Makes you wonder how things would have gone in Richmond had McAuliffe eked out a victory over Youngkin, in part because of what was being said in the right-wing echo chamber just before the votes were being counted in Virginia. The day before the gubernatorial election, Donald Trump was telling his supporters that they must get out and vote because of the, quote, margin of fraud in Virginia. Steve Bannon, who is still thumbing his nose at a subpoena to appear before the January 6th committee, was warning his followers Democrats were going to try to steal the Virginia election. Over on Fox, they were being totally responsible about the whole thing. Sorry, I mean totally irresponsible. First of all, it's a really tight, they'll steal it. So you can't afford to have a really tight election. 
Uh, you have to win by a big enough margin they can't steal it. Actually, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich was wrong. Youngkin won by 2.2 points in Virginia. It was not a blowout. It was fairly close, just under 70,000 votes. By the way, that's a smaller margin of victory than Joe Biden's win over Donald Trump. And we all saw what happened in January at the Capitol in Washington. But it wasn't just Newt sounding the stop the steal alarm bells in Virginia. Tucker Carlson, who just released a tinfoil hat documentary on January 6th, was also suggesting that the fix was in. There has been a hitch in the highly anticipated count in the Virginia governor's race. Fairfax County, which is the biggest and most Democratic county in the state of Virginia, will not be supplying its vote results on time. We're supposed to have early vote shortly after 7 o'clock Eastern, but an hour ago, a Fairfax County official announced that there is a delay. They say they need to rescan the ballots. They're going to release a partial count, quote, of their early vote in person sometime this evening. Bill Hammer will be tracking that for us. We're also going to talk to Britt Hume. We're going to figure out how many votes they need, apparently. Just kidding. Tucker is always just kidding or asking questions. If you adjust your tinfoil hat just right, he sounds very sincere. But the usual bad faith actors on Fox were just amplifying the far more volatile rhetoric in other corners of right-wing media in the days leading up to the election. They got to get out of the watching mode. They got to get to the fighting mode. They got to get sharp elbows uh, because otherwise the, the blue machine in Virginia is just once again going to just generate uh, enough votes to put one side over the other. This is a grave concern and the Republican side should be jumping up and down, fighting. Uh, they should be throwing fists. They shouldn't be losing gracefully. They need to really, really work on this fighting arrangement. They're just, they got to get out of this passive crouching watching mode. So a lot of concerns. The host of that show, John Fredericks, a popular figure in conservative talk radio, was whipping up plenty of hysteria on his own about the vote in Virginia for days. Everything moving in Yunkin's direction and the Republicans, but a lot of people fear this is going to get stolen. They're going to try to cheat. We've got all kinds of irregularities now going on. Where's the, where's the jumping up and down here? Where's the lawsuits? Why are they accepting mail-in ballots you know, way after the deadline? I mean, why are they sending out you know, absentee ballots to people that didn't put their Social Security number? Violation of law. All this has got to get flushed out. But you're right. The Yunkin campaign, they got seven days. They got to get on it because you know they're going to try to steal it in Fairfax. But the Democrats didn't steal it in Virginia. They lost, and then they conceded. Terry McAuliffe released a statement congratulating Youngkin on his victory. He didn't act like a sore loser. He didn't incite an insurrection. Youngkin, who appealed to Trump supporters by calling for election audits in Virginia before his victory, gladly accepted McAuliffe's concession. And now the peaceful transfer of power in Richmond is well underway. There was no riot in Richmond, thank goodness. Right. As a Virginia kid, I was pretty happy about that. But where would we be if Youngkin had lost? It's hard to say. Maybe it would have been just fine. We'll never know. By the way, in New Jersey, the Democratic incumbent governor, Phil Murphy, won by about the same margin as Youngkin did in Virginia. Last time we checked, Murphy's challenger, Republican Jack Cittarelli, has yet to concede. Our democracy is in big trouble if only one of our two major political parties accepts the election results when they win. The pundits in Washington have been furiously slicing and dicing last week's election results in search of some larger meaning behind Youngkin's victory. 
the one lesson that sticks with me is that our system of government, while far from perfect, worked pretty well last week, despite what happened back in January. Perhaps some in the MAGA movement and on Fox can now have a little more faith in their fellow Americans and in our democracy. There's been a lot of complaining about wokeness this past week. I've been more worried about repairing the brokenness of our republic. Enough with this stop the steal nonsense. If you win, great. If you lose, move on, please. Nobody watched his show, so he has to go back to January 6th. For four years, they didn't count. They did not legitimate Trump. Amy Siskin, on that CNN clip about the so-called white suburban women, the narrative is complete bullshit. College-educated white women voted for McAuliffe by a bigger margin than Biden. Non-college white women gave it to Youngkin. And the reason is simple. Racism. They don't want progress. I join others in my dismayed and disgust by these women. I don't know how to reach non-college educated white women. The women I can connect with and influence are college educated white women. I'm open to suggestions of ways of doing so ahead in 2020. Bring it. Because we knew that's what they were going to do. But they've even lost Bill Maher with her kind of thinking of calling parents racist, liberal comedian Bill Maher, calling out the left smear campaign against moms and dads who turned out big for Glenn Youngkin. The lefty host schooling guest Michael Eric Dyson over critical race theory. They're not objecting to black history being taught. There are other things going on in the schools. Can, like we, can we just, like separating children by race and, and describing them as either oppressed or oppressor. I mean, there are children coming home who are tra feel traumatized by this. Uh, that's, what's, that's what parents Bill, are objecting to. Katie, do you think Michael Eric Dyson really believes that this is all about whether schools are teaching the history of slavery? Do you think he really believes that? I think that Michael Eric Dyson is a racist, and this week that he he deduced and, and you know, degraded Winsome Sears by calling her a black mouth moving, speaking about white supremacist ideas. So I think that he likes critical race theory. I think he doesn't want real American history to be taught because it shows the promise of America and that we can get over really tough things in this country and come together despite our skin color. Instead, he wants to continue to separate people by race because that's his ideology. And it's not just now. I mean, he's had this ideology for years and years and years. And he gets a pass uh, as a professor at Georgetown, I believe. And he continues to spew this kind of hateful rhetoric. So I do think that he wants critical race theory taught because it aligns with his very racist ideology and his statements when it comes to anybody who has a differing opinion, especially if you're a black woman in Virginia who gets elected by parents of all different stripes and backgrounds because you're concerned not just about critical race theory, but about other uh, issues of education in the state. Glenn Youngkin famously said he wants everything about this country's history taught, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, and so I recommend, can I recommend an article? Please. Permission? Uh, Danny Barefoot is his name. He did a focus group of suburban women in Virginia. They had voted for Ralph Northam and Biden and then flipped to Glenn Youngkin. So I want to say, what do, what do they have to say? Well, it wasn't about critical race theory for them. The, the education issues were very broad. It was in, um, the fact that learning loss from COVID shutdowns were really on their minds. Falling test scores, they're concerned about their children not being able to compete. Um, the fact that you have school closures like that continued 
a little bit better now, but the whole mask mandate thing went back and forth. Also, the safety of students. Don't forget what happened in Loudoun County. Yeah. That was on local news all across Virginia. And Glenn Youngkin had an applause line about bringing and offering advanced math in every high school in Virginia. That was an applause line. So that's not about critical race theory. That's about parents who want their kids to be able to compete. People clapped for math? Yeah. Wow. Uh, that wouldn't have Let's been me. I would have sat Let's right on my hands. Math. Greg, your thoughts? Well, I mean, the, the funny thing about that, the Bill Maher thing, is there's a huge blind spot for people that favor CRT. They never, they can't show us the good parts. So they go, what do you, what, what, what do you got wrong with it? And so then Bill Maher will say, this is the problem. But they don't see that as the problem. They see that as the advantage or the positive attributes of CRT. So it's like when you ask somebody about CRT, what they will tell you is exactly what scares people. It's like, yeah, we're creating this, you know, this oppression politics. It's about the oppressor versus the oppression. We're getting kids at a very young age to accept, accept the fact that this is a racist society and that your parents are probably racist because they're in that society. But you got to I would always go back to the science. No child is equipped with enough brain matter to deal with race or gender, especially when you see that the parents, the parents can't even uh, address these top address these topics without beating each other up. The, lastly, Di Tyson belie Dyson believes that this is like basically just white parents, right? Mm -hmm. Worried about their white kids. No, it's a lot of non-whites who realize that instilling this kind of righteous it's a righteous victimhood, and what, and it can quickly turn any promising overachiever into some petulant failure. Because if you become su successful through victimhood, then you'll only be successful through victimhood because that'll quickly replace the same thing with any kind of woke ideology. It replaces a deeper thought that you should be chasing. Michael Eric Dyson has a name similar to yours, Earl <laughs> Ford Jr. Would you like to talk about that or the actual topic? <laughs> that is the strangest <laughs> transition. That's a segue. Yes. Uh, the Michael Eric Dyson, I don't think he, he's not a racist. He's, yeah, I think yeah. you should have him on the show. You should have him on your show. I think you'd find him interesting. You guys would have a great debate. I used think, to debate him on a different network. <laughs> think about this. And I mean, and, and I think I think you would probably agree he's a decent guy. Think about this. I think Brian Kilmeade, who we had on the show, you had on the show last week, has written a book about Douglas and Lincoln, and he's unearthed some things we didn't know about that relationship. Now, that relationship, what he unearthed, will probably unsettle some people on the side that they don't want to hear that because they think Lincoln was this, or they don't want to hear that because they think Douglas was this. But the fact that he's gone about this heavy, heavy research, deep research to uncover these things, I think only makes the public space better, stronger, and for that matter, the canon better. Brett Baer wrote a book on Grant, and he's unearthed things about him and his family and how he rose to power that will only help us understand Grant better and might put in perspective for those who thought Grant was wrong to end Reconstruction. He put in perspective, Brett did, why that happened, how he saved the union, how we were able to get the rail railroads across the country because he made that deal. I'm, an, I'm a proud American. I'm proud of everything that's ever happened here. There's some ugly things that have happened, which I'm willing to confront, and I'm not unsettled by, and there's some unbelievably great things, a lot more of that. We have to not be afraid of words. We can't be afraid of a few ideas. I don't want kids thinking they're an oppressor or oppressed, but I do want kids to know what happened in the 1800s and in the 1900s, and one of the reasons why neighborhoods and cities and communities look like they do. I'm not afraid of this, and I think any good, strong a uh, red-blooded American who pays his or her taxes, they won't be afraid of it either if we do it the right way. Okay, so you 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 know you defend Dyson, and I, I get defend it. Dyson I, as a person. Yeah, I, 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 I as a but, person. But there is a weird, and we t there's a new segregation going on, and it's it's not just on, on color, it's on thought. So it's yeah. like when he says black mouth, white words. He's wrong. That's, yeah, that's not yeah. right. I don't defend that. There's like think, no, there's like that I, means that there's no such like you can't share thoughts. There's no, it won't work. It's like using the wrong you know plug. 
for a computer, you know? It also means you're defined by your skin color, not by your, yeah. your thoughts or well, you, your What it really means is we have set thoughts about what skin color should say and do. No, well, Tiger Woods should not be not a golfer. Right. Doug Williams should not be a quarterback. That's the kind of, those yes. are the kinds of set thoughts we have. And if that's what Michael Eric Dyson was doing, he's wrong. Yeah. All I'm saying is let's have the conversation and not get upset about it and understand. He's a liberal, but he knows that they're full of shit. They're just full of shit. Washington Post fears right-wingers will weaponize school boards. Okay. Conservative school board wins may deliver chilling effect on racial equity. Because remember, this is what was said on MSDNC. Antonia, as we pointed out, CRT specifically might not be in the curriculum, but elements of it are going to pop up in discussions naturally about racism, diversity. Our kids have questions. Do Democrats need to make a better argument than just saying, this is a bunch of lies, there's nothing to see here? There is something to see, and it's something constructive. Well, Steph, that is the major question right now. And what I can tell you is that over the last several months, Democrats have not launched a robust response to disinformation around critical race theory. And they haven't offered a clear message to parents who've expressed all the concerns that we've just laid out right there. And in the absence of them having a real stance on all of this, they've allowed uh, Republicans, conservatives to really control the narrative around critical race theory. And to be clear, you know, what you often hear is people say that this is an academic study that teaches that all white people are evil oppressors um, or that America is a, a, an inherently evil place, that's not what critical race theory teaches. It's a framework, for example, to help you understand why do we still see racial inequality, housing inequality, a massive wealth gap in this country, and academics sort of working with this framework to answer those questions. But the real trick for Democrats because of this is going to be, right, that on the one hand, they have to make clear to their base, to others, that critical race theory is not taught in K through 12. But on the other hand, in the other breath, they need to still be able to express some support for some of the aspects of that academic framework, right? That they, many Democrats do believe that there is persistent racial inequality. They do believe we need to address a wealth gap and that race has played a major historical role uh, in the federal government um, and at the local level in communities all over the United States. And so how do you in one breath support aspects of critical race theory, but also make clear that it's not in schools and that kids are they need to embrace it at the same time why inflation's a good thing they're doing the wrong Klein thing yeah we're just gonna make shit up it's a good thing it's so great that you fill up your gas tank and it's 10 more dollars stephanie rule president presidents don't do not control gasoline prices Here's the reality. I remember when uh, Bush was blamed for prices. I remember Trump was blamed for prices. Yeah. I remember all that. If any first lady disappeared, you'd want to know where she is. Here's our CNN discussion about the first lady. Because they said she had COVID. The public has no idea where Governor Newsom is. None. They don't even know where the fuck the guy is. He's been off the grid for 11 days. There's no reports. None. Why would there be? Why? F- 
fucking chuckleheads. The hypocrisy is so bad. I don't even know sometimes how to cover some of this. I don't. Without a GOP governor to blame, health experts in Colorado have no idea what's causing the spike in COVID-19 cases. Simultaneously, we need to put kids in masks forever. Some schools are getting rid of mask requirements. Doctor, is the country in a place where it's okay to take this step? And if not, not now, when will it be? Well, uh, first of all, I, I think it's too early to stop requiring children to wear masks. That's one of the biggest pitfalls that we've fallen on is the fact that in the, fa- in the past, whenever we think that things are good, we go ahead and we take off our mask and the CDC says you can take them off. And that's what happened in July uh, when we prematurely stopped taking our masks. Delta came along and just blew that theory out of the water. Um, listen, this is not just the United States doing better. This is the whole world needs to do better. We've opened up travel effective yesterday and Europe is seeing its highest COVID um, percentages that, that it's seen almost in a year. There's a storm in the horizon and it's coming over. Yes, I think it's too soon to lift mandates for masks, especially in children at this point. When will it be safe? Uh, your guess is as good as mine, mm-hmm. but I would say in hopefully a year, maybe two. They're sick fucking people. They're just sick fucking people. It doesn't matter. There's all sorts of reports that this is bad for kids. All of this is bad. I mean, CRT is bad. Not having friends is bad. The isolation is bad. Suicides are up. Drug use is up. Everything's bad. Fuck it. You can't build back better without panic. You need it. Journalist says Ron DeSantis is lying when he says reporters make up anonymous sources. New Governor DeSantis lights up corporate media. They think they should be able to control the narrative. They should be able to elevate the people they want. And if you're, if you're not in that club, they can smear you so people won't like you. But people believe what they see with their own eyes. Ted Brittis, they make up anonymous sources, says Governor DeSantis, which is false. I was a journalist for Washington for 20 years. Sources speak on a condition nominee, are identified, vetted, and blah, blah, blah. Do, do, do I need to bring up all the cases that anonymous sources lied under Trump? They knew they were lying and they ran with it. Do, do we need to really talk about that? And then in the beginning, once again, I, I want to make sure. That we caught what Biden did to a reporter. I'd like to ask you real quick, sir, where, where do you stand? You said last week uh, that this report about uh, migrant families at the border getting payments uh, was garbage. No, I didn't uh, say that. Let's get it straight. You said... Everybody coming across the border gets $450,000. So the number was what you had a problem The number I was referring to. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Sure. If, in fact, because of the, the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child, you lost your child, it's gone, you deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. What that will be, I have no idea. I have no idea. But you're saying the DOJ negotiated settlement. That was violence. Words are violence. There were black people in that room. But it's okay. White House says businesses should move along with vaccine mandate despite staying stay by the court. Her whole thing was fuck it. Just fuck it all to hell. Then we had this happen with Biden's 
Department of Justice. A journalist as part of an investigation into a diary believed to have been written by Joe Biden's daughter, Ashley. Now, according to O'Keefe, within an hour of the first raid last week, the New York Times reached out for comment. Now, how did the Times know about the search warrant so quickly? I don't know. It's just one of many unanswered questions. Kind of sounds like that pre-dawn raid on Roger Stone. Fake news CNN cameras just happened to be there uh, at 5 o'clock in the morning. Anyway, here to explain more, his first interview, he is the CEO and founder of Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, along with his attorney, Paul uh, Calli, is with us. Uh, welcome, both of you. James, I think it's important to establish other media and I'm not comparing you to other media, but other media use undercover cameras and have for many, many years, like even 60 Minutes and uh, NBC's To Catch a Predator, right? That this, this is not a new form of journalism. You acknowledge that? Well, Sean, on Saturday morning, uh, I acknowledge that, but I woke up to a pre-dawn raid uh, banging on my door. I went to the door to answer the door, and there were 10 FBI agents with a battering ram, uh, white blinding lights. They turned me around, handcuffed me, and threw me against the hallway. Uh, I was partially clothed in front of my neighbors. Uh, they confiscated my phone. They raided my apartment. On my phone were many of my reporter's notes, a lot of my sources unrelated to this story, and a lot of confidential donor information to our news organization, Sean. So I I've heard the phrase, the process is the punishment. I didn't really understand what that meant until this weekend. And, and Sean, I wouldn't wish this on any journalist. Let me, let me go into the issue. Like anybody that works in any form of, of journalism or in the press in any capacity, whether you're a talk show host like me or doing what you do or doing what anybody else does, in the course of doing your work, you have sources, correct? You have whistleblowers. You have people giving you tips all the time. To what extent can you tell us the context under which you were given this diary? I assume you did not take the diary yourself, did you not? Is that correct? That's correct. I'll speak to that, Sean, if I can. Um, an anonymous source contacted Project Veritas and indicated the source had in its lawful possession a copy of the diary that the source said belonged to Ashley Biden. Project Veritas had no prior contact with the source. Source had a lawyer. The lawyer engaged in negotiations with Veritas's in-house counsel in the resulting written agreement, like so many news organizations do. Veritas, uh, the, the, the source again, affirmed that it had lawful possession of the source material. In exchange for that, Veritas agreed to pay money for the right to publish the material. As you know, Sean, uh, Veritas never did. It killed the story on the newsroom floor. It went a step further, and it turned the material into local law enforcement. The actions of President Biden's Department of Justice in this case are unprecedented because there's let, let decades me, let me go of into Supreme this. Court precedent. J James, I've known you for a long time. You had no direct knowledge that what this source was giving you was, could in any way have been stolen. You, at, you were not able to corroborate the authenticity of the diary, and you never ran it. At what point, then, did you go to law enforcement on your own unsolicited and tell them that you had this in your possession and it might be somebody else's? 
Well, Sean, I mean, we, you know, we get sources come to us all the time. We have thousands of sources come to Project Veritas. The routine nature of journalism to, uh, to, to be shown information from a variety of sources. Um, but this is an attack on the First Amendment by the Department of Justice. Uh, we, we didn't, we didn't uh, publish the story. We, uh, we couldn't authenticate the story, so our journalists looked into it. We, couldn't, we did not publish then, the story because we you, could not authenticate it. Which, by the way, if you can't authenticate it, then you, you did the right thing. At what point did you feel a need to bring this to law enforcement? At what point in the process did that happen? After the decision was made to kill the story and not run it. I, I got to add one thing, if I could, Sean. You use the S word. It's really important to understand not to buy the premise that the diary's stolen. I, it, no, nobody Well, that nobody was my next question. If that's the case. I, I, I have been reading all over the, the Internet, everywhere in between, that she claims it was stolen, but other people claim it might have been left in a, a, a former place of residence of hers. Do we have an answer to that question? We do, but, you know, I think people might look at me and say that I'm crazy for talking about the facts at the level I have already. And so I'm going to respectfully say that's going to come out. It's going to be awfully favorable to James and awfully favorable to his news organization. Well, I think but it's awfully I, interesting I that limit. James is the one that brought it to law enforcement's attention. Let me ask this question. What is the alleged crime that they have here? I don't know. This was they didn't tell you? turned in a year ago. Well, the search warrant has misprison of a felony, accessory after the fact, and transporting material across state lines as the basis for raiding the home of a journalist and seizing his work papers and journalist's notes. Um, I would assume both of you are pretty familiar with what Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers case and the New York Times obtaining uh, stolen top secret documents that they were publishing. They actually set a precedent in the U.S. Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision that said they had the right to publish it even though that was stolen material. Do you see similarities? the right to publish, the right, to, it's, a, it's entirely similar. There's no exception to Mr. O'Keefe and Project Veritas. The right to take the material knowing it was stolen, the right to seek comment, the right to investigate, and ultimately the right to publish. This is outrageous and unprecedented. And journalists did, everywhere on either why side. Why, if you went to authorities a year ago, if I'm understanding you correctly, why did this come up now? James? Listen, I'm James. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Sean. I, I don't know the answer to that, Sean. But this is um, they've crossed the bridge here. Uh, of, if they can do this to me, um, these are about certain principles that are so fundamental. Our First Amendment in this country. I, I'm calling upon all journalists to to take a stand against this. A source comes to us with information. I don't even decide to publish it. If they can do this to me, if they can do this to this journalist and raid my home and take my reporter notes, they'll do it to any journalist. This is about something very fundamental in this country. I, I don't know what direction this country is going in, but, 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 but journalists everywhere have to rise up because we broke no laws here. They could do it to me. They'll do it to anybody.
So when they came to your house in this pre-dawn raid and they threw handcuffs on you and pulled you out of your house and 10 agents go inside, um, were you just, when they, I assume they took items out of your house and office as I understand it, uh, at that point, did they just take the handcuffs off and say, see you later? They spent uh, about over two hours in my, uh, my apartment and they confiscated two of my iPhones. And again, these phones contained a lot of source information and reporter notes on them. Uh, these are serious First Amendment issues uh, and, and, and donor information to our news foundation. So yeah, it's, it's troubling. Um, and uh, I, I, I asked to speak with my attorney a, a few times. They, they allowed me to do that. But uh, I, I was... They actually also caught New Jersey gubernatorial election worker tells non-citizen and non-registered voters she will allow him to fill out completely a ballot now. It's all on tape, but I can't download their tapes anymore. But the DOJ, they're, they're still looking. They're looking for fucking Biden's daughter's diary. I haven't done anything with the laptop proving that Boblinsky and all that stuff's true. Haven't done anything because they only go after the president's enemies. It ties really well because we were told that Trump was a fascist. He thought he was a dictator. He thought he was a king. But we do have bright spots. The one bright spot we have is that Adam Schiff went on The View and there was actually someone there to press him. So I want to ask you about something that's in the news a lot right now. Um, you've been really prolific over the past few years being the head of the Intel Committee and you defended, promoted, you even read into the congressional record the Steele dossier. Um, and we know last week the main source of the dossier was indicted by the FBI for lying about most of the key claims in that dossier. Do you have any reflections on your role in promoting this to the American people? Well, first of all, whoever lied to the FBI or lied to Christopher Steele should be prosecuted, uh, and they are. Uh, and unlike in the Trump administration, if they're convicted, they should go to jail, not be pardoned. Uh, so Donald Trump pardoned Roger Stone for lying. He pardoned Michael Flynn for lying. Uh, if people lied to the FBI, they should go to jail. Um, but at the beginning of the Russian investigation, I said that any allegations should be investigated. We couldn't have known, for example, people were lying to Christopher Steele. So it was proper to investigate them. And let's not forget what we learned in that investigation. We learned that the Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was giving internal polling data, campaign polling data, to Russian intelligence while Russian intelligence was helping the Trump and campaign. And to be clear, he was fired halfway through the campaign. Well, he may have been fired. Yeah. But the, the effort to get Russian help continued and even beyond the effort to get Russian help. But you the may president have also spread Russian disinformation get... yourself for years by promoting this. I think that's what Republicans and what people who entrusted you as the Intel Committee Chair are so confused about your culpability in all of this. Well, I, I completely disagree with your premise. Uh, it's one thing to say allegations should be investigated, and they were. Mm -hmm. It's another to say that we should have foreseen in advance that some people were lying to Christopher Steele, which is mm -hmm. impossible, of course, to do. But, but let's not use that as a smokescreen to somehow shield Donald Trump's culpability for 
inviting Russia to help them in the election, which they did, for trying to coerce Ukraine into helping him in the next election, mm. which he did, uh, into inciting an insurrection, uh, insurrection, which he did. Um, none of that is undercut. None of that serious misconduct is in any way diminished by the fact that people lied to Christopher Steele. No, I think just your credibility is. Well, I think the credibility of your question, credibility of your question uh, is in doubt. All right. I have a question. That sums it up right there. The credibility of your question. When placed with facts, once again, it's your question. When you bring up, many globally are concerned about climate change is about the spread of infectious disease. Seven in ten people globally across 14 countries and seven in ten kids fear climate change when anybody you talk to is actually a scientist we're not gonna die the planet's not over it's a made-up bullshit that fucking aoc came up with sunrise movement but facts yeah you know facts always get in the way of the agenda which brings us to our this is america this guy ran for office or is running for office. This just makes me angry. It's time for the worst soundbite. When the liberal media is pushing one of them agenda story and says, This is America. 2021. That was James Carville in the wake of Election Day last week, blaming Democrats' wokeness as the reason for their losses across the board and starting a conversation, a very, very vibrant one, about how exactly Democrats have lost some of the good things they had going for them. As Congressman Conley said earlier in this program, 13-point swing since one year ago. Seemingly as a reaction to part of that conversation, our friend Matt Dowd chimed in yesterday on Twitter, tweeting this, quote, as they sat in church today, I was thinking, if Jesus were here today, he would be accused of being woke. How about we just say it is human decency to treat all with respect and dignity, and that it is constitutional to say all men and women are equal. I want to try to nail you down on where you come down on. I think this is probably not a very helpful debate to have about wokeness, but I wonder. I wonder what you think. Well, first, I don't ever think it's a really good thing to, for old white guys to use the term woke, right? To and frame the reference of that. To me, this is like it's it's another thing like critical race theory, right? Like people say this word and it's taken on a pejorative, but it doesn't. There's like nobody knows what it means. It's accusing other people of it. The only people that are, this is, seems to be a fire about is, again, in their sort of right-wing infrastructure ecosystem here and there. But Democrats need to get back to just using the common values that every American connects to, and that's the conversation we need to have in the course of this. I don't think Terry McAuliffe lost Virginia because of the woke culture in all of this. He probably, in my view, lost more because he talked about Donald Trump too much. And I think that's what the problem with the voters have right now is they want to have this battle on election. In their mind, Donald Trump is yesterday, even though we all know he sort of surfaces in this. But they want to know your candidacy versus the other person. What's the difference and what are you going to do in my life? Quit talking about Donald Trump. 
So you don't think that education, which was wrapped up in a whole bunch of things, it wasn't just this campaign pledge from Glenn Youngkin to ban critical race theory, which isn't taught in Virginia public schools, but it meant something to Virginia voters. I mean, I hear you, and I, I said that, and the right went berserk. Said critical race theory isn't taught in schools. It's an attack that connotes something that isn't real. It's real to those voters who swung in a huge way in the suburbs and ran up margins for Glenn Youngkin in rural Virginia. Well, here's this is the problem that I want to, is in my candidacy, want to try to help Democrats in this. And I said this during the 2004 campaign. Anytime the other side is using your term, you're winning in, a, in the course of a race. So if they're using your terminology, you win, you're winning in this race. Jesus would be a Democrat. He's an independent on our media, by the way. Now he's running as a Democrat. You guys don't even believe in Jesus. From the beginning of the show to the end of the show, it is apparently true that the media, because they won't acknowledge that they're ever wrong, are going to continue just to be the op shop, the com shop, excuse me, for Biden and put out misinformation. Yet every time they do this, I mean, think about Twitter and Hunter's laptop and Russian disinformation and censoring reports and kicking people off Twitter for talking about that it probably came from a Chinese lab and everything we've been through. For four years, the Russia probe was a lie. Since it happened, Rittenhouse was a lie. Everything Biden said to get elected and the media said to get him elected was a lie. They're on a policy binge of things that only the far, far, far left believe in. It's all lies. Yet instead of doing the diligence that they did with Trump when he says now for the second time the first time was the rent stop moratorium now with the mandates fuck the court I'm a king I can do whatever the fuck I want Trump never did that and he was a fascist they stopped everything they stayed every policy he did. There's a point that we're going to have to understand. We have a problem in Washington. Republicans stepped over to help Biden get his infrastructure. Because they all are just part of the machine. Just a machine that isn't about race. It, it's about class. You are beneath them. They know better. Candace nails it, and it's extreme, and it's hyperbole. But we are more and more seeing like a Politburo-type Democratic Party. They don't believe in law. They don't believe in justice. They use the DOJ just to go after their enemies and they get away with it. All of them need to be voted out. 
including the Republicans. We need to start from scratch. Because you tell, you can tell it's more systemic, one of their favorite words, than just the Democrats when Republicans vote for something. That money will not go to infrastructure. They knew that. It's going to social justice infrastructure and tree equity and roads that were designed to stop black people from moving about, but it was really about they wanted the poor white people on the wrong side of the tracks to stay there also. There were more poor white people over there than there were poor black people or Latino or lesbians or trannies. But they latch on the critical race to everything and they use it to shut you up. So they'll fix bridges. This will be just like the Reformation shit Obama did. The only thing that happened in the red states was already projects in making. We had a, uh, a road that I live next to. They were turning it to four lanes. It had been planned for decades. They were working on it. He passed his bullshit act to get out of the recession. They slapped a sign on it. No funds were conferred. The funds were already there. They had already been allocated. But Obama, well, I did stuff for red states. No, you don't. This money will go to blue states. It'll all go into the blue coffers. It won't be spent just like the relief money still not spent. You think those schools spent the trillion dollars they got in two relief actions? Clearly not because they didn't prove anything. There's some places kids still can't go to school. All of them need to get the fuck out. We need adults to run the country. And if you're asking NASA, that's a trash back to the trailer park boys, to look and count trees because you can correlate black communities with less trees because blacks live in the urban area more than the rural setting by choice and there's less trees in cities than there are where I live. I guess I'm just a white supremacist because I got three acres of land and it's all wooded up into our deck in the backyard. And we got four trees in the front yard and we're going to plant two more. I'm a, I'm a grand wizard because I got a bunch of trees. I like trees. I like shade. I like the woods. I like fucking possums and raccoons and squirrels and deer roaming around and an occasional fox who's probably killed a bunch of my cats. That's some fringe shit from a college. And they're running with it. That's insane. It's just insane. All of it's insane. And how I fear the midterms is the fact that they don't care the polls are tanking. They don't care there's inflation. They don't care that black, brown, gay, tranny, Martian with three dick are saying, this is bullshit. We don't want you to spend that money. We just want relief now. Not a government handout. Fix the supply system. Fix gas. Because you can do it. Open back up the pipelines. Let exploration continue in the United States instead of shutting it all off. Convert to natural gas. Or how about nuclear? You notice how they want this 
when they talk clean energy, nuclear is evil. Yeah, that's the fix. It's clean. Doesn't put off any CO2. It's not a bug. This is not a glitch in the matrix. They want you miserable. They want to hand you stuff. They want you to be complacent in your house. They don't want you working. They don't want you to have things. They want the things. You go fuck yourself. And they're going to rig the next election like they rigged this one, fortifying it with bullshit rules so that multiple votes can get put in by people they want to get put votes in. They're going to really push in this next year to get the illegals on the fucking voting rolls because that's their plan, replace you. I mean, we don't even talk about immigration. Record numbers coming across the border. He wants to hand them cash because the previous administration. No, no, no. That's your administration, President Biden. You started kids in cages. It was 2012. Trump wasn't even in a fucking thought at that time. He was still telling people that you're fired. You're fired. It's huge. He gets away with all these lies. He gets away fucking ignoring fucking law. He gets away with fucking yelling at reporters. Google can suppress it. Twitter can suppress it. Facebook can suppress it. ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, New York Times, CNN, MSDNC, WAPO. You can all spin your yarns. We believe our lying eyes. This is a full-fledged shit show. People aren't going to even be able to buy fucking turkeys because there's a turkey shortage. That's why I had one of my employees do it a month ago. Not a month, a couple weeks ago. They needed hands, gave them the money, told them to leave right then. Go buy it. We're going to get back to fucking COVID rationing because of his mandates, because of his regulations. And there's no relief in sight. You do the right thing. You get the vaccine. You're still wearing a mask. Company I work for, they're not going to change it if you get vaccinated. But they're going to eventually, because they're a California company, they're going to follow this mandate. And I'll prove, violating HIPAA, I am vaccinated. And guess what? I'll still wear a mask. Everything they've done is to make your life miserable. While they blame whitey, tree equity, climate change, January 6th, Trump. It's all a fucking farce. And they just get away with it. That's fucked up. So this wraps up another episode of Flower Politic Podcast. Please share this with your family and friends and go to foppodcast.com where you can find links to Rumble and SoundCloud for all of our episodes. Next show will be the 17th, followed right behind... With a 20th. We're going to do two next week. This Saturday, I'm going to go on a hot date. Because that's what I want to do. Go on a hot date. That's kind of weird. My volume went off. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs and tune back in 
next week for the next show. Thanks for listening. Take care.